Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Who Can Convince You. I'm Harry. I'm Luke. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Feeling shit. Good. My hair's long, it's greasy, I need a shower, I need a shave, I need a haircut. Um, But apart from that, I'm I'm alright, yeah? Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you're glad, I guess. What's it to well, you? I suppose well, how so. are you doing? I'm all right. But it, really? I'm waiting for my target box to arrive. Ooh. Mm, I how made the get? plunge. Um, five. Six. Are they, like, in no particular order? They're just, like, good stories that you picked out? Yeah, I've ju- I've, ju- I've, bit, I've, bit, I've picked um, stories that I like. Right. Uh, to start off with. Because I'm not a big reader. And I thought, if I pick something I don't like, I'm not going to read it. So I think it's best to ease myself into it. It's hardly, you know, you know, I'm trying to think of a big book. Um, it's hardly a big book. Yeah, it's hardly reading the Bible, is it? So um, hopefully, well, they'll arrive soon. Have you bought anything? I bought a little something. Mm. Do you want me to tell you what it is? No, you're all right. All right. So, then. would you like? Um, go on. <laughs> but yeah, I bought a box set, a Blu-ray box set of Doctor Who, the New Who series one to seven, including the specials of Tenant. I can't wait. I know the first like four seasons are upscaled, mm. um, but I can't wait. Really I imagine can't they'll wait still for look it. pretty good. Yeah, well, they'll look, no doubt they'll look better than BBC iPlayer. I'm sick of it now. That low uh, bit rate is horrendous. BBC iPlayer is the worst streaming platform. It's horrible. There is. Yeah, it it's really crashes bad. constantly. It's yep. dire on everything as well. Yeah, because we watch on the PlayStation or watch on the Fire Stick thing, or I've watched it on my phone, and on mm-hmm. everything it crashes or it's it horrible. just doesn't load. Why? And the whole nation pays for it as well. Defund the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, there's, there's some good purchases there. I think. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm very excited. Oh, and I bought I bought the season eight. Uh, oh, you did. Pertwee box set. You did. Yeah. Have you watched any it's, more of that? Uh, I haven't. Right. Um, I was ever so disappointed. Why? Well, I don't mean as in very. I was ever so disappointed. I was slightly disappointed. Why? But. Just because, you know, when you get it in your head that the quality is going to be amazing, like mm. you think it's going to be like Spearhead from Space, but mm. obviously because it's not on film, it isn't going to be. But in your head, you still yeah. hope. If it was um, on film, you could get like 4K from it, you know. Yeah. I will say but, that the the terror of the Autons uh, fixing is fabulous. Done a really yeah. good done job. Done well. You can upscale things look amazing, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen a bit of it. It's very grainy. It, it's a lot yeah. of details lost in that, but it's just what happens when you upscale it. But yeah, but it's worth it for the documentaries alone. I will say. Yeah, there's like twenty hours. There's Insane. tons of the stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. I hope there's stuff like that on the series one seven box set. Oh, I know. I imagine Doctor Who Confidential will be on there probably. Mm. Oh god, used yeah. To, you know, after every episode. So before we get stuck into the episodes we're doing today, would you like a quiz? A quiz? A quiz. The first quiz of who can convince you. 
Would you like that? Yeah, I'd like that. I'm sure you would. Feel free to play along at home, everybody. So this quiz, uh, it's not going to take too long, is entitled Doctor Who Memorabilia. I'm going to give you four items of Doctor Who memorabilia, and I would like you to order them in price highest to lowest. Okay. Four items priced highest to lowest. Item number one is a 1966 Doctor Who annual in mint condition. A++++++++++. (laughs) Second item is Evil of the Daleks Target Book First Edition. Third item is a boxed, battery-operated Marx Dalek from 1964. And item number four is 177 Eagle Moss figures as a bundle. I'll go over those one more time. 1966 Doctor Who annual in mint condition. Evil of the Daleks Target Novel first edition. Boxed, battery-operated Marx Dalek from 1964 and 177 Eagle Moss figures. Any guesses? Highest to lowest? Immediately. I don't know. Immediately. (laughs) Immediately, I think Eagle Moss, that 177 collection bundle, will be the most expensive thing because those bastards are expensive. Like $17.99 each for like a little figure? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure they are. I think I've bought them cheaper. I will be honest. Or maybe twelve ninety nine. They're expensive anyway, and 177 of them. I'd need a calculator to figure that one out. I will say they're used. Right. They're not brand new. It's not just you going on Eagle Moss and putting them all in the basket. They are right, a bundle okay. of somebody that's had them used without the packaging. It's like they kid themselves to think these are collectibles, but they're not. They're just little tat things that they... You've got four of them, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three of them. I've got the, the mark on them. Sorry, go on. Well, I will. The paint job is a bit dodgy on a few of them. Mm. I've got the Mark One Tardis console. I've got the Cyber Controller from Tomb of the Cybermen, and I've got the Ambassador from the Ambassadors of Death. Those uh, out of the the three, the worst is the Cyber Controller. Right. But the Tardis console is pretty great, and so is the Ambassador. The Ambassador is excellent. Really. Yeah. There's nothing, no running. It's really, really good job. Oh. We're, well, we're talking... We're talking over a grand here for the Eagle Moss collection. Well, this is your decision. So you're going to say Eagle Moss is the most expensive? Yeah, I'm going to say that. Okay, After I'll make that, a note of that. I would say... Hmm. The box Dalek... Is that like yes. mint condition, or is it like a barely the Dalek? A box? It, the Dalek itself is mint condition. The okay. box is probably B C grade. That's not too bad. Some, yeah, some it's still a box, and... and it still yeah. seals. You know, right. it's still okay. it's still a box. Okay. I want to put that next, but is it the Target book? Is the first Target book? Is it or it's the, the first, first print of that one? Okay. Actually, it might actually be the first Target book. I'm not that clued in. Mm. It right, could gonna... be the first Target book, actually. 
I reckon the target book is the cheapest, then the annual, then the Dalek in the box, and then Eagle Moss at the top. So you're going Eagle Moss, Dalek, annual, target. Yes. Okay. Tune in in three months' time, and we will give you the answers to that quiz. <coughs> Joking. We'll do the answers now, yeah. How do we think he's done? By Jove. He's done it! Oh, really? Spot on. Really? At I first place, right. 177 Eagle Moss figures will cost you £2,000. Oh, my God. Where's <laughs> your put them as well? A boxed Max Dalek will cost you $249.99. The Doctor Who Annual 1966 in mint condition mm-hmm. will cost you £150. And the Evil of the Dalek... Da- the Evil of the Target? The Evil of the Daleks Target book will cost you $99.99. <laughs> no, $99.99. Buy now. <laughs> Four monthly payments of $99.99. <laughs> Order now, get a free window cleaner, only nine ninety nine. But you get a free window cleaner on top of So well done. That was the first quiz of who can convince you. I enjoyed that. Did you? So I, yeah, I did actually. Especially, you know, because I won it. it. Yeah, especially. I thought that was good. I was debating doing a quiz about the stories we've done. Right. But Ooh. I think that's more interesting. Yeah, it's much more interesting. I love memorabilia. Gotta be mm. honest. Mm. I remember the golden period on eBay of classic Who memorabilia that doesn't really seem to be there anymore. But that was brilliant. I enjoyed that. Shall I do next time? Oh, go on. Should we All make right, this then. a thing? Should we Should have we, quizzes? Yeah, maybe. Would you like that at home listening? Yes. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> brilliant. Should we get on with it? Yeah, let's get on with it now. Let's go. This week, we're going to be looking at the Robots of Death and Listen. But we're starting off with Listen, I do believe. Pardon? Sorry? Pardon? Did you hear? Pardon? Listen. At what? So yeah, we're starting off with Listen. Would you like to give us some information? Synopsis. Well, bit of this, bit of that. All right, then. Uh, so this aired at half 7pm on the 13th of September. Half 7pm? Yeah. <laughs> 7.30pm. So this aired at 7.30pm <laughs> on the 13th of September, 2014. Do you remember it? Were you there? Uh, no, I'd gone by this time. All right. Yeah, I was as well. I, well, I don't know. I don't know. I might have seen it. It's very vague. Uh, directed by Douglas Mackinon. Producer was Peter Bennett. And music was done by none other than... Murray Gold. Yeah, that's it, Murray Gold. I'm converted. I'm converted. You are. As, listen- as listeners might be aware from the last podcast, well, the last bonus episode, um, I'm converted. I'm glad. 
you know, Tim brought some light to this, and he did. I'm and say, I will say, I, 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 I appreciate him differently now. It, yeah, I liked it, him, but yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a different view of it now. And I will say, we're going to be trying out a different method of uh, running the podcast this week. Um, so please, please let us know your thoughts on a different structure for the podcast this week. You can send us an email, who can convince you at gmail.com or uh, grab us on Twitter at who can convince. Just let us know what you think of the format of the podcast. We're just going to be changing some stuff around in the coming weeks, I think, aren't we? Just to figure out what works best for us and what people enjoy. Yeah. And I think some feedback from the listeners would be ever so helpful. Essential. Oh, essential. We need to know Sorry. what's good to listen to. Exactly. Sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. The Doctor has been pondering on a question. Have people ever been truly alone? Does something lurk unseen beside us all? With Clara at his side, the Time Lord will find himself delving... (laughs) (laughs) The Time Lord will find himself delving into... Fuck off. The Time Lord will find himself delving into familiar pasts and eerie futures. Just where does the answer to the old man's unanswerable question lie? Will we find the answers he's been searching for? Or will his quest cost him his life this time? Old man! They wouldn't have put that if it was David Tennant, would they? No. He is old, old, obviously, you know, as a time lord. He's not an old man. Yeah, but as a a time lord he is, isn't he? But just the fact that it's Peter Capaldi, they've gone, oh, it's an old man. Yeah. The sexy young doctor, will he survive? (laughs) (laughs) Sexy young doctor. (laughs) (laughs) ah well so let's skip all the bullshit what did you think right off the bat uh right off the bat i've listened to no i haven't i've watched this three times for the podcast Mm -hmm. the first time i watched it i didn't enjoy it at all right uh the second time and third time i watched it I thought it was fantastic. Really? Yeah. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, and we'll we'll probably get into that. But yeah, the first time, I just thought it was boring. Nothing was happening. Yeah. Uh, and then the second time, I thought, do you know what, this is pretty good. And then by the third time, when I did the notes, I thought it was amazing. Wow. Yeah. That wasn't quite to that level. I thought it was, uh, yeah, first time I watched it, it was like, oh, okay. And the second time, I was like, yeah, it's, it's confident. It's pretty confident in what it wants to do. Um, I think episodes like these um, belong in like a subgenre of Doctor Who, mm. where they don't really have any monsters in it. Um, it's like a capsule, if 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 I may. <laughs> what does that mean? You you may. It's like a like a contained little capsule, like a dream state. Where it doesn't really follow a normal episode structure, uh, you know, it's 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 strange. It always has this weird feel to these kind of episodes. Same thing with uh, Midnight, uh, in season four of New Who. Yeah, and I, I think mainly my issue with this is that I feel like I've seen it before. It's the same thing of don't look, don't blink. Well, I think yeah, because Stephen, well, Stephen Moffat does have a tendency to write more 
supernaturally kind of things. Yeah. Like the things in the back of your head or the things in the back of your head, mm. things in the back of your mind or the corner of your eye or like don't blink, don't look, don't like so- Psychological things. Yeah, psychological. That's the word I would have used if I'd have thought mm. of it and hadn't <laughs> rambled. Um, yeah. Do you think that has any place in Doctor Who though? Uh, yeah, I think it's fine. Okay. I think, yeah. I, uh, especially in season four, I think it's overused. Well, maybe so. I mean, the story does sort of... I think the the most obvious thing you could probably compare this to is the William Hartnell story, Edge of Destruction, which is hmm. sort of more of a character piece rather than action and a bit more psychological where everybody's a bit odd. Yeah. Um. So it's probably harking back to that, and it's sort of... Yeah, I think it I think it has a place in Doctor Who not all the time cuz you need to keep those monsters per minute up. That's what I'm thinking. And technically maybe in this one the monster in the in 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 quotes, air quotes. 66 and 99. Yeah. Uh isn't really even there. It could be. Could be. Oh, but... I think this is a story for more of an older Who fan. Do you think? Well, it's very, it's more, it's slower paced, isn't it? There's not a yeah, lot of well, action. Well, there's no action. There's well, no yeah, action. Nothing really. Slower paced, more dialogue driven or scene driven, rather. I think, isn't it? Mm. Where, whereas with New Who, it tends to be that things happen very quickly. Whereas this yeah. is more slow ramp, isn't it? To sort of. With New Who, I think it puts those plot points, you know, the significant events in an episode first. Mm. And everything else around it is just filler. Oh, yeah, I think, We need yeah. to get there. Um, anyway, how? You know, just chuck Jackie in there, something like that. You know, it, it, nothing really has any substance. Well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it doesn't have substance. Nothing. I just think it's... A, nothing. <laughs> I think it's just a different <laughs> style of writing, isn't it, where you know what your yeah. end goal is going to be. And... Obviously, there's some loose ends in the story that don't get tied up, but I don't really see that as a problem because I think the nature of how Doctor Who is written now with continuity like running through a whole series rather mm. than contained within like a four, yeah. six, ten-parter with its continuity only in that little story of old Who, I think it... It, w- it gives it more t- like room to breathe, doesn't it? Yeah, I think... You know, you can sort of do more things with it that way. Whereas with old Who, continuity isn't as big an issue. Maybe there's some continuity if a previous writer comes back and writes a sequel to a story yeah. they've done where they can sort of use what they've already done rather than being told, right, the Daleks do this and you have to do this and da-da-da-da-da. I think New Who can have a bit of creative license with being a bit more... Wishy-washy, because you got to think of all of the stories sort of adding up as this arc for the series or the yeah the season. Don't know if that makes any sense. It sort of yeah. makes sense in my head, but no, yeah. So it can take some liberty in like some episodes, can't it? Yeah, because... I think, yeah, it doesn't have to, and I think it helps that way because I think sometimes if you're not really invested in a story arc, which tends hmm. to be the way, I think I didn't really care about Bad Wolf. And the nice one, uh, yeah. I think if you don't really care, it's nice to have a story that doesn't constantly go. Can you hear the sound of the drums? Listen, um, 
Or, uh, what's that on your back? Yeah. Um, oh, look. Blythe Droog. <laughs> what's that mean? <laughs> Bad wolf in Welsh. Um, yeah. I just feel like this episode didn't explore much of the characters besides uh, maybe one or two takeaways. Um, which is, well, what we'll get into. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, I think it focused on a character that I didn't really care for, you know, Danny. Um, but it sounds like we're wrapping up when we haven't really started yet. <laughs> so let's get so right. So I'm going to give it a... Bl- <laughs> so let's get right into it. Let's go. We're, we'll start with Act 1 of this episode. Um, I'll give a brief overview of what happens in Act 1, and we'll talk about it. So Act 1. The Doctor theorises that there is a creature that cannot be seen and surfaces in a dream everyone has. Kara goes on a date with Danny, and it doesn't go too well. Kara returns to the TARDIS, and the two of them set off to the moment Kara had her dream. Now, what do you think of the premise of this episode? There is a monster that lurks... Around everywhere, you know, it's, it's a super hidden creature, a part of nature that's mastered disguise and camouflage, and is completely hidden throughout history. And a doctor well, theorizes, you know, that there's something here. Well, I think this is one of the things that doesn't really make sense with the story, right? So, and I think it's the main thing, really, that isn't resolved. And I don't know whether we should talk about this now or we'll talk about it at the end, but it, it's come up, so we may as well say it now. So the one thing that isn't resolved is whether they're actually there's actually people following you around or whether it's a thing that's in your mind. Yeah. So the thing that is on the bed, is that actually there or is that in your mind? Because we, we never get, see it. Yeah, we get we that blur shot, don't we? So the creature on that bed, because everything in that happens in the episode that could allude to a creature being there, you could argue it's not really there, though, is it? It's probably something um, that is just in our minds. And, mm. you know, like the thing under your bed, nothing's really there, but you assume it is because you had a dream about it. Um, yeah. But the, that's the only instance in this episode where there are Rupert Pink's they're in Ru- Rupert Pink's prink. <laughs> they're in Rupert Pink's room, and suddenly there's someone sitting on the bed, and there's a creature under the bed sh- cover. The bed cover. Do you remember that? Yep. And there is a moment where they're all looking at the window, and the bed cover is pulled off, and you see just a glimpse of what the creature could look like. Do you remember that? Yeah, and it doesn't really look as it. You can't tell, is it human? Is it not human? Yeah, because the but eyes is, are really yeah. weirdly spaced out and it's short. And But that that is a thing as well with like when something's out of focus, it looks yeah. weird anyway, doesn't it? So, yeah. And it doesn't... It's a, it's a, I love things like that, things that are suggested in the shot. You can't really make it out. It leaves so much to your imagination. Yeah, and I think that's what it does well, really. It doesn't bother me that this isn't resolved. Hmm. But it does leave you wanting to know, doesn't it? Well, in a good, in a good way. There, in his short story, this is Stephen Moffat's short story, 
um, corner of the eye, uh, there is a creature in there called the Floof. The Floofs. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. So this is like a little man creature thing. Um, and basically it just causes mischief in people's lives. And you can always right. see it at the corner of your eye, but you never quite, you know, but when your subconscious picks up on it, you know, you you start to, well, pick up on it. Yeah. Um, and there is a picture in this book, and it looks very similar to what we see in this episode. So right. I think it's safe to assume that this is supposed to be a floof. And is that a thing that's in your imagination, or is that a thing that's No, it's real? a real thing. Okay. That has just mastered the art of, you know... Being able to escape people's sight and you know disguise itself and things. Mm. Um, however, I think it's only in that scene that that floof was really there. Yeah. Well, that's the only instance where we see anything, isn't it? Yeah. And the rest of the episode can be ex- you know explained by oh you think something's there, therefore something has to be there when it's not really. Say yeah. when. Um, the doctor forgets that he wrote listen. I think he forgot to wrote listen on the blackboard at the beginning. And mm. when they hear something outside, he knocks outside and then he opens it himself with the sonic screwdriver. And nothing opened it, he opened it. And when he said, like, he, when he, he thinks he sees something, doesn't he, when that door opens? Yeah. Um, but he can't, he doesn't ever bring it up again. Maybe because he got concussed or something. Yeah, because there's that br- it cuts straight away there, doesn't it? So, yeah. Well, straight from his reaction. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't look scared or anything; just looks, doesn't he? Mm. Um. So I, I don't think anything was really there, but it's just weird that in that one instance that there was something there, probably a floof. Could have been a floof. Could have been a floof. So yeah, I think first this is the first time we've re- re- we're reviewing an episode of Capaldi with yes. Capaldi in it. What did you think of Capaldi? I think he's excellent. I think he's brilliant. I think he is he is the best new who doctor. Mm-hmm. I completely um, agree. Yeah, I don't know whether it's because he's older. Um but he just has this this thing about him. Mm, it just seems traveled, I think is the Yeah, he does. Yeah, and it, I think it. You could probably say that it helps that he's a fan of the program, mm-hmm. so he's picking up on. He's probably thinking of a certain actor, isn't he? Most likely Pertwee, that he's sort of channeling. Yeah, into his performance of it. Um, I don't think he's he's ripping off Pertwee. There's a couple of episodes, from what I remember, where he's just doing a Tom Baker impression. Hmm. But I think it works enough that he's sort of he he has certain little quirks that hark back to him obviously being a fan. Yeah, um, I, is that okay? That you yeah, sometimes the doctors whoever's playing him impersonates a doctor that has been the doctor before. Well, I, I think because it, technically he is still John Pertwee. Well, yeah, we you know. <sighs> It's a tricky one, this, isn't it? And a lot of people have different views. I know J.R. Southall from the Strangers in Space podcast and the Blue Mm. Box podcast 
his view is that the Doctor is a completely new person when he regenerates. Because it is said that every cell in his body... Yeah. ...dies or, you know, regenerates. So he has to be a new person with the memories of that past incarnation. Yeah. Which... If every cell was replaced and regenerated, then... Surely I suppose, he wouldn't have but, those memories, but... But the thing is, uh, I think, at the end of the day, he is alien, isn't he? Yeah. And she. But, so it's hard to sort of work out a definite, but, you know, we've all got a little theories of what it could be. Yeah. I like that idea that it is a completely new person with the memories. I'm not sure whether I agree with it 100%. Mm-hmm. I think there has... It's hard to tell, isn't it? It's sort of... I like to sort of think of it maybe more of a snake shedding its skin. Right, okay. Where the underneath is, it's the same person, or not, maybe not, and person probably isn't the same word, it's the same being. Yeah. But the appearance changes over time. But the core is still the same, so the memories stay there. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the two hearts, you know, that thing stays the same. So the gender doesn't come into it. The age doesn't come into it. But the memories are still there. Yeah. Um, That's probably getting a bit in-depth for me saying, yeah, I like Capaldi. I think he does a really <laughs> good job. I think the other thing I quite like is that the script is very tailored towards how he plays the Doctor. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, he says some things that Tennant would never say, but yet Jodie would um, say things that Tennant says, you know? So, for instance, Capaldi yes. says things like, uh, oh, the human race, you never, you're never happy, are you? That, does, that is a very classic Who line, I'd say. Yeah. Like, Tennant yeah. would never say that. All he ever says is, oh, I love humans. Oh, they're fantastic. You know, it... It's not like Capaldi's looking down. It's just he sees flaws, glaring flaws, and will you know sp- speed them out. Yeah, I will say as well. I haven't seen. I I have seen everything. I think now. Obviously, I've seen all the classic way before, but I think I've watched all of new. At some point, you would have watched all at, of them. At some point, I have seen them all. Oh, okay. I've just sort of forgotten. Yeah, but. I seem to remember when Capaldi took over and I watched the first couple, maybe. Mm. I was happy to see maybe a slight return to old Who. Mm. In that it was slightly slower paced. Maybe that is because he's an older actor and they have to sort of admit he's not going to be running around all over the place. And Yeah, maybe. He's not, you know, all the other Doctors, previous... Even Chris, I don't know how old Chris Eccleston was when he played the Doctor. No, he still ran but, around quite a bit. Yeah, that's yeah, but you know, they were all under forty, weren't they? Yeah. So they're all going to be a bit more. How old is he? Uh, Peter Capaldi. Yeah, I think he's in his late sixties now, isn't he? Mid sixties. Oh, okay. So he would have been like late or early. Late fifties, maybe early sixties. Yeah, I don't 60s. know exactly. Um, but you know he's he's not gonna want to do the no. action man thing. I wouldn't have thought, and he's not that kind of actor, is he? Really, where 
but he's got the sort of the energy of an old doctor yeah without having to be running around all over the place mm. and i think from memory he can't really run you know like <laughs> you know i can't run yeah he really can't run okay you know just he just physically he can't do it <laughs> it just looks silly <laughs> well thank god because yeah. it's coming a bit of a a bad motif i'd say of just running everywhere there's so much running Doctor Tennant especially yeah he's running everywhere yeah in the doctor's daughter they do say like it, you know there's lots of Catherine Tate says in that episode like, there's lots of running yeah uh, they love running ah oh. So you know there's too much running, but you're still going to do it anyway, show right. You know, the show run is brilliant. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, I just don't think, you know, when Kara tries to hug him at the end, it's like, no hugging, no hugging. Oh, it's just such a different Doctor. And that's how I, to keep yeah. the show fresh. I, I really enjoyed that. That Yeah. It's one of the, I think because he's older as well, the actor is older, it sort of, comes across where people don't like um like holding hands in public mm. and showing affection in public. Yeah. Like older generations tend to be like yeah, that. Absolutely. I don't really like it. You know, when you see somebody snogging outside the butchers. <laughs> <laughs> but so I think it works well and it does sort of draw a line of the companion won't really fancy the doctor now. Mm. Because they've all been the same age, really, haven't they? Where the companion has been, Rose was David Tennant's age. You know, yeah, it would work relationship-wise. Not saying the age gap wouldn't work, but it's obvious that the companion is not going to step into the TARDIS, see Peter Capaldi, and go, <laughs> pull your strides down. I so, think that's why I like Catherine Tate so much because she made it clear off the bat. Yeah, he's too skinny. <laughs> he doesn't want. Any, she doesn't want anything to do with him. <laughs> What are you going to cuddle? Yeah. So uh, I think um, it is a nice departure that knowing that there won't be any any um, lumpy pumpy in the TARDIS, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it is very much an old who thing, that isn't it? Mm. Where it's maybe more of a father daughter thing than a boyfriend girlfriend thing. Yeah. Yeah, you get that. It's well, like when he says, uh, "You've got too many mirrors in a room." Yeah. Yeah, you don't need one, just turn your head. It's just, yeah, it's a dad thing yeah. to say. It's nice. Yeah, I like the makeup quote as well. What, is it, what does he say? Oh, like, yeah, um, exactly. Put your, uh, do your make, you haven't done your makeup. She said, I've got makeup on. Uh, oh. oh, you've missed a bit then. <laughs> yeah. But no, he's great. And I think he has a great rapport with Clara as well, because I'm not a huge Clara fan. Okay. Uh, maybe only because I haven't really seen... Or I can't really remember her run. But from memory, she just sort of gets killed off and then comes back and then gets oh, killed no. off and then comes back. But yeah, I, d- I don't know whether... I'm, not, I'm still a bit undecided, really, on whether I like Clara or not. But I do like... I do like her relationship with the Doctor in this. Her relationship with Peter, I will say. Peter, I think I think they do Peter. bounce off each other quite well. Mm. No, because you know they're bo- they're both great actors. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was surprised by Clara. Yeah, because you just assume she's going to act in a certain way, judging by like what companion. 
the companions that have been in the past that are in her age group have yeah. a certain style, don't they? They tend to be the same, not the same character, but they do a certain thing. Yeah, Whereas well, she's she acting her age, seemingly. Like, all yeah, the rest she are seems very to be a bit childish. Different. Yeah. Especially Rose. I think she's but, the childish one of all of them. I'm not a fan of Rose. But <sighs> yeah, you know, from what I've seen of Clara in this one, um, I like her. Yeah. So, just touching on the creature again in this. And the whole theory is that you can't, you know, there's something always there. You can't see it. It's great camouflage. And he says, like, nothing in nature has, like, perfected this yet. Not like they have with hunting and defensive things. We get blower fish at the beginning to represent <laughs> defense. Um, I mean, we've got stuff on planet Earth that are good at that. Plus, there's been stuff in the series itself that are brilliant at masking themselves. Uh, say, for instance, the. Like the creatures in Forest of the Dead, uh, mm. where they're literally things you can't see. They lurk in the shadows. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think I like the premise of the the creature. Like it's set up like nothing you've never seen anything like this in Doctor Who before. Um, so yeah, the beginning of this just felt so weak. I think that's why uh, first time we were watching it, we were just put off straight away and didn't really listen to it. Yeah, I think yeah, it comes across that it's just another story that's yeah. a mid-season filler. Mm-hmm. Of don't really take much too notice of it, but I think the more you watch it, I think it's what it benefits from multiple viewing, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's quite a few stories that are like that where you pick up on things and you think, oh right, okay, and especially the end of this story, I completely glossed over that. I yeah, I did. I didn't like, fucking notice the doctor. I, First I was like, what it? on earth is going on here? Who's yeah. this? So, that was nice. That was nice. Can the Doctor sit on top of the TARDIS in space? Well, the, the idea, I think, is that the TARDIS How'd has got get up a, there? A, <laughs> <laughs> the TARDIS has got, like, a sort of a bubble around yeah. it, hasn't it? Um, so he's sort of still in that void or vortex of air bubble pocket thing. But how does he get up there? I don't know. I don't know why he's there, really. It's it, weird, well, he's isn't sort it? Of, he's sort of meditating, thinking, isn't he? I think. That's yeah. The, the idea. But the TARDIS needs windows as well. I don't know well, it's why. It's got a it scanner, had... isn't it? The TARDIS has got a scanner that we do, that well oh, doesn't get you, used you... anymore, does it? Not really. Well, yeah. What do you mean the 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 cameras on the front of the TARDIS? The cameras on the TARDIS. Well, it's a yeah, it's a camera, really, isn't it? The ring. <laughs> the... <laughs> You know, when they look through the screen and you can see outside the TARDIS. Yeah, see outside, yeah, yeah. Is that the scanner? Yeah. Just get windows. Well, yeah, but as you know from, uh, you know, the the inside of the TARDIS yeah, is not where the, you know. Oh, well. I'd get rid of that. Whoever thought that up, just get rid of it. <laughs> it's for the set, really, isn't it? Yeah. So it's easy to do the set. Um... Speaking of the TARDIS, mm. it looks fantastic, doesn't it? It is the best new series console room. I'd say it's the best one yet of what I've seen. Ever? Yeah. Maybe. If you disregard, like, oh, it's old, so, you know, give it some give it some leeway. I'd say it's the best one. Everything in the set yeah, has minute detail. Yeah, multi-level. Minute detail. And it's functional as well. You can really film all around the TARDIS instead of just one angle. Yeah. It, it's a, 
Yeah, it is a glorious set. It's amazing. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I think my my only issue with the new series TARDIS is, is that they're so big inside. Mm. But having said that, I do like the movie TARDIS, the Paul McGann TARDIS, I've and that's massive that. inside. That's right. massive. There's bats in it. No way. But Yeah, it's huge. That's weird. But, yeah, I just... I do tend to prefer the smaller console rooms. Mm. But having said that, this is this is up there. Well, it was designed by uh, Michael Pickwode. No. And, what? <laughs> and yeah, if you really notice like, the blackboards in the TARDIS. It's weird, isn't it? Isn't it? I th- he comes across a bit more professory in this, doesn't he? Exactly. Because Baldi goes, well, I won't go too... I won't say anything else because something happens that you mm. probably aren't aware of yet. But, um, yeah, just the set dressing, everything's brilliant mm. in that Tardis set. He, he wanted to reflect more of like what Capaldi was about, like he's more studious and yeah, wants yeah, yeah. to you know, learn and keep, you know, Exercise in his mind, things like that. So I think it's a lovely touch. I don't think Tenants does that at all. I don't. It's just, I don't a, it's like just a weird that big design artist. Yeah, totally, it doesn't reflect like the Doctor at all. And I think it, it's the TARDIS has always been a sort of a living thing, like it's alive. Mm. But just because it's alive doesn't mean it's got to look organic for me. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with the Eccleston and Tennant TARDIS, because they share their console room, don't they? Lots of slime. It's weird, Lots of slime it? in those series. And then uh, Matt Smith's TARDIS is awful. I can only I remember not liking oh, it. I've only seen terrible. it once ages ago. It's very green, isn't it? Uh I think it's very yellow, isn't it? Oh, I, I don't can't know. remember. It's it, it's awful. And then Jody's yeah. is those crystals, it's rank. Oh, isn't it? It's like a load of rock. It's yeah, like, like big like yellow, yeah. yellow fingers, sort of. <laughs> I just, I don't like it. But then this again, is, oh. the Joe Martin Tardis, bang on the money. I nearly shit myself when I no saw way. it. No way! It's so, it's perfect. Really, Please say it's go the back best to one. using that. It's, it's probably, it's up there. <laughs> you just don't want to it say is. it is because it's New Who. Uh, no, it's not because it's New Who. Oh, okay, you clever little bastard. It's um, I've ju- yeah, I've just got it's level pegging really. I've got a few that fit oh, in that top. I can't. Okay. I just can't pick. Can't All pick. Right. But it is. Oh, it's oh, it's brilliant. Well, Capaldi's one is excellent. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like I said, I do like how it reflects Capaldi's, you know, Doctor. Um, yeah, and they used lots of different designs in that TARDIS from all across millennia's. Like it, it harks to Victorian sometimes, Tudor sometimes, modern sometimes. You, you got lots of things in there. Well, I think that um, works because it's a sense yeah. of travel, isn't it? Exactly. It's like a travel yeah. bus. <laughs> like you have lots of like stickers and you know, places where you've been. It's just a TARDIS that makes sense. Besides, I think the jelly thing where you put your fingers in, but I think that was in season. Yeah, that's odd, isn't it? I think stuff like that's what used in the third Doctor's era, is it? No, some form of like telepathy with the TARDIS and the Doctor. 
Uh, it's, it's a thing to send a message to the time yeah. lords. So it is capable of stuff like this, but a weird way of doing it. Just put your hands in some jelly and this, I don't know. I, I only... came up with many rude jokes that we will not include for that. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's not all, you know, sunshine and daisies and stuff, but one little tidbit that I like to say is, um, you know, those circular, like, lamps on the side of the, like, blue and red in the middle of the side of his TARDIS? Or the around walls. walls. Yeah. They're actually the same model that is used for the Daleks' eyes in the series. And they thought it just, it was great, good, nice to be used as lamps, so they use the same model. Nice. And put stuck him on the side of the Zardis. Um But his justification, uh, Michael Pickwode's justification for that was uh, that the Daleks and the Time Lord share a lot of the same technology. So, okay, that's what he said. <laughs> okay. Um, mm. But yeah, <laughs> I think we'll carry on with a bit more of the story, and then I want to get to how. This series looks so good, and it, it looks amazing. I've seen some trailers of things to come in this series. Yes. It looks incredible. Mm. Such an upgrade. My God. So, Clara goes on a date, doesn't she? She does. Uh, she does. With... Danny Ping. Danny, that's it, Danny. I know Rupert is his kid version, but yeah, Danny. What do you think of Danny? Um, I don't really care. No. He's very depressing in all the roles. Yeah, his think, character. Well, he's supposed to be a bit like that, I think, isn't he? Because he's obvi- he's been in the army and stuff's happened that's made him stop, finish with the army. Yeah. So I think that's handled well. It's just... It's just an area that doesn't interest me. Family values, again. Do you reckon family just, values? Uh, probably, well, yeah, because it's the whole she's going on a date and... Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Whereas I think, yeah, not to compare, really, because I don't think you can. We brought, I think Tim brought this up in the bonus episode, where you can't really compare New Who and Old Who, because they're so different. Yeah, so different. But I think, like, things like in the classic series, where if Joe Grant was going on a date with somebody, it was just mentioned like that. Oh, gotta go, I'm going on a date. Mm. Whereas now it's sort of we we have to sort of follow them a little bit because it's a character that we mm. we love, you know. So yeah, but I just I I just don't really care about Danny Pink. I don't think he's it's a bad performance. I think he does it pretty well, mm. and I think his variant words. Mm, Same as me. Can't get him I out. Think, yeah, I think his his variants are different. I think um, what's the older. Version is it Orson Pink? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I think he is sufficiently different to Danny Pink in that he's a bit sort of haunted. Yeah, he looks haunted in all the roles. Yeah. Um, oh well, apart from the kid one. So there's two of those roles actually. <laughs> yeah, two of those roles. Uh, great makeup for the uh, the child. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a character that I don't really have any interest in. So I don't really no. have a lot to say on him, really. 
Uh, I think the story would have would it would it have worked without him? Well, no, it wouldn't, no. because uh, <laughs> that's why we're going back, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's not a bad performance. It serves a purpose. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So we're in the TARDIS now. After that date, and the Doctor wants to go. He talks to Clara about the dreams. <clears throat> And everyone has the same dream, and they want to go to the time when she had that dream. Mm. Have you ever had a dream where someone grabs your feet under your bed? Uh, I don't dream. That's true. No, from what dreams I have had, I have had, I have had, uh, I have not experienced that. Neither have I. Maybe, maybe Stephen Moffat gets in such drunken states. Hmm. He thinks people are ragging his legs when he's sleeping. <laughs> Could be. I just think choose a different dream, maybe. Do you uh, want where you get your, your uh, teeth kicked in? Yeah, maybe. Plus, that could that could be a different story, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe. Stephen Moffat's drunken Edinburgh blunders. <laughs> oh, I just never had a dream like that. And I don't. That's why I feel like it's a bit disconnected. Like because they're harping on about everyone has this dream, mm. and you got those three characters who get their uh, legs grabbed on. Don't know. None of them wear socks in bed. Interesting. I'm a sock person in bed. Are you a sock person in bed? I used to be a sock person in bed, but I get very warm now. Mm. I think it's because I, I think I'm carrying a lot of timber, so I think that blubber. Is affecting my heat, oh, so I I have to desock now. Otherwise, I'll just wake up dripping. Ah, <laughs> sopping, sopping. Right, change, change the, the bed again every yeah. day. I just, I think it's it's kind of lost that aspect of it where everyone can relate to this. And please write in if you wear socks in bed. Please do. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in people's feet. Yeah! Jesus Christ! Um, I think that's the end of Act 1 when they travel to uh, where Rupert Pink is in the orphanage. Yes. Some over Act 2. Child Danny, a.k.a. Rupert, is scared from the dream he just had in an orphanage. The Doctor and Car... The Doctor and Clara calm him and the creature appears for a moment underneath a bedspread. They travel back to Clara's timeline, and she returns to her date. A spaceman lures her back to the TARDIS, and it's revealed that he is a distant relative of Danny, who travelled too far forward in time and was stranded. Reunited with the Doctor and Orson in the space pod thing, knocks a herd outside. The Doctor opens the lock on the door and is knocked out. He is rescued and returned back to the TARDIS. Mm. The orphanage. Yes. Now, what I picked up on this episode, and I hope it's the same in other ones, is that every scene, now every location looks very different. You get a true, yes. like it, and in this one, the lighting is so weird in this orphanage. It is like it's we're in some sort of dream. It's great, though. It's got yeah. a lovely feel. And I think my favourite part in the orphanage is when the Doctor speaks to the night 
clerk or whoever he is, you know, who's on the night shift. Yeah, he's watching TV. Yeah, and you see the TV through the window, and it's just a nasty, nasty lighting, and it just works great. Yeah, it's dingy and horrible. Um, and then we go up to Rupert. (laughs) I hate this kid. I thought it was crap. I thought it was crap. I, oh, I have a problem with child actors in general. I know you do. But, um, yeah, it wasn't horrendous. No. It didn't make me cringe. didn't lend anything me. to this episode. You needed something good. It's probably best to just leave him asleep, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> deal with it whilst he's asleep. Um, oh. But, yeah, I thought it... I th- I thought it worked well, and the tension is brilliant in this section of the story. Okay, yeah, when they think the creatures there and they're hiding under the bed. Yeah, I don't know why it didn't work for me. Because I've heard that I just didn't. I don't know. I think I it's really just can't one of, explain yeah. it. I think maybe because at the end of every moment where there is tension, either the kid ruins it or the Nothing doctor happens, ruins it. Does it? It never builds no. to anything. It drops off a cliff, doesn't it? At the end, you stole my bedspread. It right. does that thing, doesn't it, where of the sort of the horror trope of it'll do something once, mm. then it'll do it again, and then the third time you'll see it. Always the third. Whereas we never get that third time, do we? We don't get no. that climax. It's always build, drop, build, drop, build, yeah. drop, end. Which is nice. It isn't that kind of story that needs no, that. No, it's not. But <sighs> there's nothing like residual, like after, after the but, fact thing. Yeah, I think that's the problem, isn't it? That you sort of you're left hanging a little bit with the yeah. story. I think, yeah. And at this point, after we've gone to the orphanage, I think this is the point where it starts to drop a little bit for me. Okay. Where we meet uh, Orson, yeah. it gets a bit muddy. It doesn't get bad. It just this is the area for me that it feels a little bit filler. Hmm. Or not even filler, just padding it out a little bit because we've got to make yeah, it. Yeah, it's not much reason why they would be there after that. The only thing we know about Orson is that the Doctor found him at some point while Clara was on a date when they go back from the orphanage. Yes. There's no, like, he just walk, Orson just walks in with the spacesuit. And by the way, why would Orson just walk out from the TARDIS into a similar Earth he's been, you know, that he's familiar with, just 100 years in the past. Not be too, like, scared about it. And then coax Clara to come with him. No one else sees him, by the way, this man in a spacesuit in this restaurant. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Nobody clicks. And then she just follows him. The the date ends worse than it did last time, I think. And then... I think she just... She assumes it's the Doctor, doesn't she? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think what else? She's just what? thinking, well, what are you doing this for now? Yeah. They end up back in the TARDIS, and then this whole thing about Orson, 100 years in the future, first guy to time travel? I don't know. I think they said first guy to time travel, and then he went way too far into the future, and then he's at the end of the oh, world. Oh, yes. That's the Yeah. The, that is the idea, isn't it? That yeah. He's, and he's, he's been stranded further. there for six months, and finally finds these guys. Yeah. I don't... It's just... Okay, it doesn't really mean anything. Really doesn't really, does it? 
So actually, so are we to assume that the the sort of space station thing is how Orson has got into the future? Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's just some sort of a time capsule pod thing, is it? Yeah. He might have okay. gone into a wormhole or something. You know, they wouldn't have developed time travel, would they? Mm, there's only time laws have done that. But yeah, he's only he's only a hundred years. Yeah, senior only, of Clara, yeah. isn't he? So maybe so, he went into some portal or something or wormhole they found. Even though wormhole, hang on, are you like, saying time travel doesn't exist in Doctor Who or in real life? In real life, um, yeah, it exists. We're doing it right oh. now. Oh, good. We're traveling good. through time. Wow! Yeah, clever. Just clever. only forward. <sighs> uh, I I don't know. Like it's just a and nothing seen really, isn't it? Nothing, not much happened apart from the ultimatum of it, where the Doctor's knocked out. I think the main th- the th- I think the thing is is when even if a scene is a bit boring, Capaldi can just carry it. Yeah. So. I think it stops it from falling on its face. Yeah, it's not so... boring. I'm not suggesting it's boring. It's just story-wise, not much developed, and we get story development yeah. on Orson, which we'll never see again. That I know of. Maybe you'll come back in a later episode. Maybe. I can't wait to watch all these episodes and know, you know, full well what the parameters are. Because I think it's important for New Who, like what we were talking about before, where there is continuity. Yeah, there there is a thing, isn't there, where there's, with old Who... Yes, there's questions that you can ask because some parts of the plot need it answering. Yeah. Or certain things that people say maybe not don't make sense, but it's just sort of what do they really mean? Mm. Whereas I think with New Who, you do have to sort of slightly be invested yeah. to know who the characters are. I don't think this story is too bad because you just assume Danny is the chap that Clara's after. Yeah. Danny is in a previous episode. I think yes. he is a teacher, isn't he? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, he's left the army and he's gone to be a maths teacher. Yeah. And Clara's a teacher. And he does that head-banging thing on the table when he's fucked up. <laughs> I think, yeah, he does, <laughs> he does that in a previous episode as well, I know that. Um, so... But yeah, well, I think, like you said, Capaldi carries this. One of my favourite bits in this, this act was... Uh, when he proper goes ham on Clara and says, oh, get, get back in the TARDIS now. Oh, I'd listen to him. Yeah, he's he is great with the different dynamics of his yeah. acting, isn't he, really? Not to say that everybody is everybody else is flat, but he does handle that sort of thing well, where some actors, maybe Sylvester McCoy, as we saw in the last one, can't do anger. Hmm. They can do the serious stuff or maybe just the sort of flat, talky stuff. But when it comes yeah. to certain emotions, they just can't handle it. And that's no fault of theirs. It's just a certain thing they're not very good mm. at. It's how you use your actors as well, isn't it? But some of them are really flexible. And can... Yeah, and I'd say Capaldi's flexible. Um, And he does really carry this section of the story, even if it's not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but... What did you think was so? What do you think was behind the door? Do you think it was another apparition, or are we assuming well, at this point that what he sees out there isn't really there? It's a tough one because they they specified that there is an atmosphere outside of that pod station thing, uh, like acts as a bubble. Um, hmm. So something could be out there, 
and something does knock and they all hear it. Uh, yeah. I don't know what it could be. Maybe it's Orson, like, just, you know, doing a most haunted and just whacking a table, you know, making them all spooked out. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? I, <laughs> I think... it. And because something it's not... was out there. Yeah, and it's, I think because it's not really wrapped up, is it? It's a very loose end about the, if it is actually there or it's just in your mind. I think it's a nice little play of sort of, if you think it's there, it's mm. there. You know, it doesn't... Because there doesn't... could well be something there, um, but it may not be the same creature every time. It might be something different that they're pinning, oh, that must be, for, uh, lit, for example, uh, Cyberman, you know? Mm. It could have been a Cyberman the whole time, or... Uh, it could just been something different every time. It could have been some form of like creature banging on the thing, you know, curious. Then it could have been a floof in the other thing, and then every other time, uh, it could have been just the imagination. Yeah, uh, it's whatever you paint the picture of it to be. If you can't see it, and we've talked about this with things that you can't see in Doctor Who, and you paint a picture of it in your own mind. Now that can be oftentimes scarier. Yes, um, you're the unknown. And I'm glad mm. this episode is. Talking about that, um, and also utilizing it at the same time, I thought it was quite smart. I quite liked that. Yeah, like I say, I found that this was the problem that I had the first time I watched it, where I thought it was quite boring because you don't get yeah. to see what it is or anything. Yeah, but the more you watch it, the more interesting it becomes. I think. Yeah. Whereas I would imagine Stephen Moffat probably thought this would get the kids in. Mm. Of sort of, you have nightmares. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. No, Stephen, we never have nightmares about people <laughs> grabbing our legs. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> you no. do. Well, I'll so do think, it then. I think he probably crafted the story thinking that it was going to be a thing that kids have nightmares, kids will yeah. relate to this, they'll like it. Whereas I think the whole the premise of the story is way more geared towards an adult fan. Yeah, for sure. So it's a bit mixed like that, isn't yeah. it? I think it's a bit... It doesn't give in any that's, department. That's probably fully. where the story mainly doesn't work, mm. is that it can't quite decide whether it's a children's things that go bump in the night or an adult what's in your mind like psychological problems. Mm. So maybe But it that's... deals with both quite blatantly, where usually if a story's going for those... You know, you want to jump in the night monster things that have an undertone of something like thematic that they want to push, uh, some message that they want to push. I'm trying to think of an episode that would do that. Um, maybe like the Absorbable off. No, I'm just... <laughs> um, but like Blink, maybe, or uh, like the Autons. Um, yeah, you know, like it's stuff that we see every day, and it has that message of like maybe not trust. Everything that you know, you're so used to, like open your eyes and be woke to it. Um, but this one pushed both quite equally. I would have liked it to either be for grown ups or for the kids. I don't think it kind of really paid off in either aspect, but it worked as a whole, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rupert is a shit character actor. So, <laughs> character actor, child actor. I want to touch on the cinematography. I'm going to get way too in-depth with it, so I'm just going to breeze past it, it. really. 
So I was really interested to find out why does this look so much better than it did with the old ones, you know, the earlier seasons of New Who. Yeah. Um, I think the sets and the more money they've got definitely drives home a feel of this is more cinematic now. I think it uses its colours a lot in these more recent series. Mm. And lighting, especially. I can't think of a time in old, in the older series where the lighting's so blatantly used. I mean, we've got, like, where Rupert is in the room with uh, Clara and he's on the floor, you've got that really nice lighting effect where half her face is in dark and the rest of it is, you know, in light. And mm. with the kid, his eyes is only, you know, got light on it. Um, I can't think of a time when stuff like that would happen. And I, when when I saw that, I was thinking straight away to the guy in the case of Andrazani. Um, mm. what was his name? The Charles guy Jack. That's what you know, where the light was on his face. Yeah, yeah, yeah him. Uh, I really like paying attention to those types of like motifs because it does hark back to classic Who. I like mm. that. Um, I'm paying attention to the light and, and the set and the costume and things, and not so much because they're using single camera in New Who. Let's just have fun with it, race around uh, these locations, run everywhere. I like how it's much more like everything in a scene works together. Yeah, it's really it, nice. It all works, doesn't it? I think, and I, yeah. and I think Capaldi and Jodie's era. Capaldi and Whitaker, their oh. eras are the best looking eras of Who. Mm. They look fantastic. They, they just look gorgeous, except yeah. for that TARDIS set that Jodie's got. <laughs> but yeah, just the cinematography, the lighting, the sets, they just, it just works so yeah. well. You can tell that there's, maybe not that there's money being put into it, but you can just tell that they're using the money well. Yeah. They're utilizing I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. everything they're they have. Using what they've got. I think they know what their limits are. But then again, by this point in the program, they've realized what they can and can't do mm. money wise. So I think it's, you know, let's have less sets, but do them well rather than half assed and have to run around everywhere to sort of yeah. just get through them. Not saying that that's, that's exactly what they're doing, but, you know, it's at least what comes across. Yeah. And they seem to spend more time in the sets, don't they? Rather mm. than sort of skirting around them. Like, there's a lot in that TARDIS set. And yeah. there's a, you know, they, they show a lot as well, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not afraid. As yeah. A they're not afraid now. to sort of focus in on set dressing bits. Mm. Yeah. And like pan around them, which is nice, you know, because that's always the thing that interests. A long-term fan, I think, isn't it? Of things that are in the background, yeah, like props and things like that that appear, little Easter eggs and things. Exactly. You know, things to just hook your hook your teeth into. I don't know what that phrase is. Get your teeth into. Yeah, get your teeth into, and you can watch it like we did three times and take it apart and come back from it every time with something new. Yeah, the sets are that good as well, that you yeah. every time you watch, there's something new. Even Capaldi's console, mm-hmm. there's certain things that yeah. you see every time you watch it that you haven't seen before. 
Oh, it's lovely. Which is really nice. And the use of colour. Mm. Oh, I mean, the TARDIS is very, like, orange and blue. Oh. It's just great. It's really, um, really good. The orphanage is stark blue. Um, Then you get into the, the, the Rupert's room, and it's a very strange room. It's like it's manufactured, almost like, isn't it? Yeah, it's some almost sort of brownie. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's strange. Red carpet it, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's very weird. But it just it like I say, with all of the stuff in this story, <laughs> set dressing wise, it mm. just works. Works really, really well. So camera wise, this really surprised me. So I looked up at what camera they're using and why it looks so good and why it pushed me to buy the Blu rays. Bet it's an iPhone, isn't it? It's an iPhone six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, the camera's gentle in this episode. It zooms and pans very slowly and nicely, thoughtfully. Um, even when in tense scenes, it, it bobs around slowly. Using my complaint with BBC things and dramas that the camera is always so zoomed up on the characters' faces and bounces up and down really fast. It, it, it is drama. We promise it's drama. But this didn't do it, which is lovely. Um, but this is a pretty big upgrade. Uh, the camera they used is called an Ari Alexa XT. And it's the same camera that is used in a lot of things. And we're talking like big budget films as well, like uh, mm. Ad Astra, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, uh, Neon Demon, uh, Ghostbusters the remake, uh, <laughs> Spotlight. Yeah, it's many big productions. And I think that's great. We're, they are proper going for a filmic you know, quality. And they're getting it. They are absolutely getting it. Oh, it's lovely. I'm happy for them. What other BBC drama like uses stuff like this? It is very good looking, isn't it, this yeah. show? And I can't think at this point, is it still a flagship BBC? Wait, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's still yeah. a thing that the BBC are really pushing. Isn't it strange how I mistakenly said drama as well then? Mm. Uh, sci- oh, it's sci-fi, isn't it? Sci-fi drama. I well, don't know. It's, it's, it is, I suppose it is drama, isn't it? This well, this episode is anyway. Light entertainment. This isn't light entertainment, though. I would argue this episode. This is very light. It's mm. quite deep. Deep. Entertainment. Oh, it's lovely. Uh, that's. But, I think that my my favorite things are taken away from this episode. That they mm. can do it if they wanted to. Uh, you know, can get that quality aspect out of it. Yeah. Where uh, the older ones, the earlier seasons, look very tacky, didn't they? Really. Yes, very there are some very jarring sometimes. Yeah. So after they, and the Orson saves the Doctor, doesn't he? Yes. From outside, grabs him. It's like yeah. a. Yes, he does because there's that very strange cut scene, isn't there? Yeah. Which is a, it was a bit jarring, and I think every time I watched it is a little bit jarring. What bit? The cut from where we meet the uh, the Doctor's smacked his head are we supposed or has hit his head somewhere yeah and then we cut to the TARDIS and he's there yeah it's like that fade out isn't it it's very odd that it's as if there's something missing mm. it well there is a bit odd. His, his recollection of the events that happened I suppose you could argue could argue ah see they're, they're paying attention to the to can I just apologise like to everybody that creaky. my chair is creaking has it creaked like a, before it has not I'm trying a different chair again 
WD-40. I'm, I'm really regretting it now. <laughs> Get some WD-40 on it. I think it needs some grease. Mm. Oh, um, like the, the tub of grease that you can get and you mm. pick out with two fingers and it's like a clump. Yeah, a clump like a of grease. Like Vaseline. Whoa. So do Try and wash that off. We're in the TARDIS now and then Clara says, right, I got an idea. Well, it's not an idea. It's a thing. It's a thing. She shoves her hand in that TARDIS womb, <laughs> tickles it a bit, and then they end up in... To a point where the doctors had that dream. Or at least thought he had a dream. Yes. So he's in a barn. I'm assuming we're on Gallifrey. Well, this is the same barn that we saw in the 50th. Uh, yeah. and Yeah, because um, it uses the same uh, scene, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, so I is think... it the old doctor coming up to that shack in the middle of the desert or something? Yes. I don't really know. I've, I've not seen it. I'm only going off what that scene told me. Yeah, we're to assume that the ban is where the Doctor runs away to hide or play as a child. I don't think it's supposed to be that it's where mm. he lives. No. Or lived. You know, just... Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether that is probably mentioned somewhere, but... Yeah, I, they, when the people come in, they said, you know, all the, you can come back and sleep with all the other uh, boys and then wherever he is. He just ran out, didn't he? Because he didn't want to join the army. Yeah, so... Yeah, to become, I don't know, it's a bit odd. Knew who has changed it slightly, I think, where to become a Time Lord, you have to be a part of the army and then leave to sort of join the uni. Yeah, that's the it sort of felt, feels uni. like. <laughs> it's not very what, um, you know, what I imagine Gallifrey yeah. would be, what I've seen it to be in New Who. Yeah. No, it's not what I'd imagine it to be either, really, but... um. A lot of people accuse Stephen Moffat of rewriting Doctor Who history. And I don't think that's really the case. I think it's more... He doesn't change what's happened. He tends to just go before a little bit and expand rather than retcon stuff. Which is obviously (laughs) what uh, Chris Chibnall has turned on its head and just rewritten everything. Um, in what? Well, Chris Ch- in the the last of the time. Oh uh, no, what's it called? Yeah. Oh, it, w- uh, the timeless child in Jodie's story, where he's r- sort of rewritten. Oh, the, did he? The past of the Doctor is completely different now. Oh no. Yeah, but um, is it worse or? Depends what what you think. You'll have to watch it and see what you yeah, think. Yeah, no. Um. But yeah, Stephen Moffat tends to have this sort of... He picks odd areas of the Doctor's past and expands on that a little bit, rather than saying, this is how it started, this is what this is, and da-da-da. It's more vague, you know, character building rather than character setting. I I suppose that's what you just have to do with the Doctor as well. Well, I think, you know, as soon as you start giving too much information, I think you take some of the mystery away. Yeah. And the character is identified as this mysterious it's, entity that travels through time. It is in the title as well. Who? Exactly. So I think, you know, you need to leave some stuff there. And I get that it tends to be a modern drama thing, that doesn't it, where people like backstory and they want to know everything is explained. But you don't need it all the time, I don't think. 
And I think Doctor Who suffers slightly now from being over-explained. And not, maybe not the mystery is taken away, but it's getting closer to being solved. Which is a shame. Well, it'll just get rewritten again anyway. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, there's always the, a chance that a showrunner will come in and just sort of discard what the previous showrunner has done and say, oh, it was it was all a dream. Yeah. You know, so, hey-ho. But yeah, what did you think of the whole it's the Doctor in the band? I really didn't pick up on it the first time, and I don't know why, because it's either. so obvious. Is yeah, it's the whole point in the last, you know, in it's, Act Three. It's the whole point of, of the happens. story, really. I think, isn't it? Yikes! At the end so of I the feel day. pretty bad for. for uh, I've just been tailored now of what I've seen of Who now, of Doctor Who, like to not really care. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Like, I care enough to 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 listen to it and I, I think I care more of the continuity of what happens next year, series or what will happen to this character in you know a series time will I see Rose again stuff like that yeah not so much to care about the details of an episode of the monster and stuff like that because it's usually the same story of you know it gets solved at the end where there was nothing really too much to solve in this because nothing not really. really did get solved because you never know nothing gets explained and nothing gets no. resolved and there's nothing to explain really no. Because it was never really there. Ooh. Or was it? Or was it? So, well, I have some gripes. Some gripes. Go on, then. So the Doctor ran away. Mm-hmm. And it was discussed between those two characters who talked, but we never saw in this barn scene, mm-hmm. uh, that he ran away because he didn't want to join the army. That's what the male voice said. Mm-hmm. And then the woman voice said, no, it's because he's fra- afraid of the dark. Yes. Why would he run into a barn in the night where there's no light to get away from the dark when he's plunged into even more darkness and he's sobbing he's that scared of the dark? Well, I think maybe it's the, the barn is supposed supposedly is safe space, is it? Is that what we're assuming? Um, it must yeah, be because he's got a bed up there. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, um, it's his sort of comfort room, I'm assuming. It's where he goes... But yeah, I, yeah, to sob. Um, but yeah, I must. Uh, I think you've just got to assume. You shouldn't have to assume, obviously. Yes, I don't think. But um, take it with a pinch of salt that there's there's some loose ends in this, isn't there? That aren't tied up. But then again, that is a Moffat thing where he does like to tie everything up at the end. So maybe the story won't make complete sense until you finish the season. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, which some people are a fan of that, some people aren't a fan of that. It depends how invested you are in the show, and I suppose in some respects it takes it out of the takes you out of it that you can't enjoy a story as much. Maybe you've got to yeah. you've got to enjoy the season. Maybe it's that old way of thinking because you know TV has changed an enormous amount in the last twenty years. Yeah, it's completely different. An now, isn't insane it? amount. We're, yeah. I'd still argue we're in the golden age of TV now, where the I think Game of Thrones did it, where the budget for TV shows are insane now. Well, look at Below Deck. What quality television that is. Oh, I mean, we wouldn't have seen stuff like that in like the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> Please, everybody, go and watch Below Deck. It's brilliant. Please don't. <laughs> no, to be fair, it's good watching, though, isn't it? Brilliant. Just people oh, arguing on a super yacht. 
<laughs> Maybe we should do a below deck podcast. Who can below deck you? Nice. Sounds wrong, that doesn't it? It does, doesn't Dirty. it? Dirty. Naughty. Yeah. Naughty, naughty, <laughs> naughty. So the doctor's in his bed. Mm. Oh, this is getting naughtier, isn't it? It is. Clara goes under the bed, way up. Careful. Uh, he is a child, remember? Skirt around well, this. I was thinking this. Imagine if uh, it was a male companion. Yikes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, thank goodness it was a woman actress. <laughs> Getting tacky now, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It's like golden syrup. Thick. <laughs> How do we get out of this one? It's a sticky situation. Uh, and then the doctor wakes up, puts his feet on the floor. Uh, oh, who's there? Clara grabs his uh, ankles. Why? I don't know. This is what I was, I it's don't very know. odd, that isn't it? Why does she Go grab his leg? I can only think that she doesn't want the doctor to see himself because it was said before in this episode when Clara was discussing, like, isn't it bad to, that I see myself? And he says, oh, it could be disastrous. Capaldi does. So she doesn't want Capaldi to see himself because he's concussed and he doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah, I I'm think guessing. I think it's sort of as well that the child doctor can't see Clara either. Yeah. Um, I think it's the whole, what do they call it? Is it the butterfly effect? It's not what they call it in Doctor Who. I, I don't, don't it, It's just a waste of time doing all this because it's broken so many times, this rule. Yeah, yeah, the rule is... So yeah. many times. Don't interfere, but interfere. Yeah. I mean, the, the most blatant one I've recently watched is uh, Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, uh, where I don't, I don't know if she pops up. I think she does pop up again in some form, but there's a character in that that she was... She insinuates that she was in love and was almost a wife to the Doctor in the future. And she's got a sonic screwdriver as well. And the, the Doctor has no idea who this woman is, but she keeps saying, like, oh, I've jumped back too early. I've, I've No, I've, I sent you a message too early to help me out, and now you obviously won't know who I am. Yeah. And they keep going on about spoilers. Uh, it's just... I don't know why they're so hellbent on trying to keep that rule alive when they break it so many times just leave it I guess it's so like I think in New Who they spelled this out in Father's Day I think it's like the fourth episode of oh, season it's, it's one. River Song isn't it that you see in Silence in the Library what's River Song well it's Melody Pond isn't it it's Amy Pond's daughter who ends up being the doctor's wife i've no idea i've got that i'm but that sure i butchered sense. that but yeah it's um mm. but yes, anyway i think but i think so. they spelled out these rules in father's day where it's really bad to see yourself and this is why you don't travel back in time when you're in a sticky situation because it fucks up and those creatures come back as well. Uh, you know, the, when he changed time, the course of history, then those creatures come about and they, everyone got in the church. Remember that? Um, father's, oh, yeah, sort of. The bad father. things. Yeah. Yeah. We don't see them again. No. 
I, it's just a mess. It's an absolute mess, and I think that's kind of what this this episode was leaning to, and it was the like the ultimate, ultimate ending of to wrap the story up, and it's, it just didn't work. I don't like it. Maybe I don't like it. Luke doesn't like it, everybody. So that's it. Take it off iPlayer. All right then. <laughs> but no, yeah, I I don't mind it. I I don't mind it. I don't mind it. <laughs> um, yeah, like the story is based on all this, isn't it? That it's more psychology than story. I think at the end of the day, yeah. maybe not more than story, but you know what I mean. More than a normal Who episode. Yeah, and I've already said it is quite like the Edge of Destruction in the sense that it's more character driven than plot. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, so that's like what I said when these episodes really should be looked at differently to other episodes. They should be put in their own subgenre. Yeah, so, th- subcategory, sorry. Yeah. I think a, th- a story like this is more of a special than maybe Planet of the Dead. You could mm. use a story like this maybe more, I think. Yeah. For like yeah. an Easter special or something like that. Whereas- yeah. Because it, it, it's. A special. It's a whole point in a special. Like this is different from the rest. It is different. And it's and Planet of the Dead wasn't really. Well, I think yeah, but I think that I suppose the other side of the coin of looking at that is that your specials are going to be the things that bring in new vu- viewers, new viewers, new viewers. Yeah. So you pull out the big guns. Obviously, they couldn't find those guns for Planet of the Dead. <laughs> Lost the key. But um, yeah, the only thing that made that. A special was that it was like twenty minutes longer. Yeah. Wow. He's yawning now. Flagging now. Flagging now. But uh I but yeah. That... At the end of the day, I think that sort of wraps up listen, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Uh what's the takeaways of this episode? I think the doctor's afraid of the dark. <laughs> and that he makes it up. She says it. She says it. Clara says it. Yeah, I suppose. Okay. It's. I just think it's an enjoyable story that sort of stands on it yeah. as its own as being different. Uh, Murray Gold, as you know, I'm a convert now. Yeah. Um. Do we do we hear much of Murray Gold in this? There's a few bits and pieces, isn't there? And for the most part, they don't get in the way. Um, no, it's all about listen. I'm going to listen when exactly. the music's blaring down your ear. I still think his music's too loud. I yeah, I've got to disagree with Tim there. <laughs> I yeah. do think the the mix is off. A lot yeah. of the time with the music that is very loud. But, um, yeah, it works fine. I think all of the cast are pretty great, to be fair. Yeah. Danny it's Pink, a very small I'd cast say, as well. Yeah, there's only like six people, seven people in it. Five. Is it? Oh, Clara, three versions of Danny, and yeah. the Doctor. That's five. And the Bedsheet Man. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> there's no reason why there's anybody under that. They could just put a... A bust under there and just just leave it. It doesn't do anything, does it? No. I, I think, again, it's a flatter himself that, oh, yeah, I wrote this story. Yeah. It is canon. In 2007, I wrote it. Canon. <laughs> canon. Go read it. But, um, yeah, should we give it a colour? A colour! Do you want to go first? No. <laughs> yeah. Uh. It's a tough one. It, does have it some is a tough one, isn't it? It, it? quite 
it rips apart what the whole tone and message of this episode was. Um, only when you look into it, though. So, um, I want to nudge to a green, but I just don't think I can. I think I'm going to have to just go amber. It's a high up amber. It's a quite illuminous amber, <laughs> amber yeah. you know. Should we just uh, move yeah. back to scores out of 10? No. <laughs> no. 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 Because next week I'll say it was a three. <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's go a luminous amber. A neon amber. Very close to green. It's yeah. It's, 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 it, has been, it, 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 it has been a tough choice. Um, I think I'm going to have to go green, though. Really? Just based on my last viewing of it, of I just really enjoyed it. And I think it mainly is Capaldi. Yeah. I just really, mainly. really enjoy him. Isn't it great that it's not only Capaldi? Yeah, mainly Capaldi. I think the yeah. story works quite well, which is unusual because I'm not a big Moffat fan. Mm. And he wrote this, didn't he? I think Stephen Moffat wrote the story. Um, but yeah, I think it works well as a nice little piece of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, thoroughly enjoyable. And if we compare this to the Witchfinders, like making it look good just doesn't do much. It's like, nothing so okay. It. Oh, wearing this, everything looked good and it all worked together and it worked well with the story and the sets and where people were and the tone. That's what makes it look good, not just spinning the camera around and using crotch shots. Yeah. God, it pisses me off. So, yeah, it's a very close green for me. Yeah. So there we go, a green and a very glo- close green. <laughs> yeah. For listen. Uh, well done, everybody. Well done. Should we move on to the robots of death? Let's do it. I'm excited for this one. This mm. is your baby now. Well, uh, uh, so the Robots of Death, season 14, serial 5, broadcast from the 29th of January to the 19th of February 1977, written by Chris Boucher, directed by Michael Bryant, or Michael E. Bryant, depending on what day of the week it is, producer Philip Hinchcliffe, and music by Dudley Simpson, and it is a four-parter. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. The fourth Doctor and Leela land aboard a sand miner, whose crew believe them to be responsible for a murder. As the crew continue to be picked off, the Doctor begins to suspect that the sand miner's robots may be responsible for the murders. (laughs) So this story had working titles of The Storm Mine Murders and Planet of the Robots. A rumoured working title for the story is War of the Robots, but this does not appear on any contemporary BBC paperwork. So I think that is just a rumour. Just in okay. case you were going to ask, because I think you yeah. were, weren't you? Oh, uh, it was on the tip of my tongue. I was, was going to ask you. It was on your tips. <clears throat> we're going to break this down into episode by episode. As ever, or as I said at the beginning, please let us know if you like this way that we're doing the breakdowns of the story, because I think it'll be helpful for us to know whether you prefer this kind of breakdown or a more chit-chat, randomy pick bits of the story. So, episode one. We meet the humans and their robot slaves on a sand miner, or the Storm Miner 4, as it's it's a bit in the air of what it... The, the thing that they're on is called Storm Miner 4, but the Doctor yeah. refers to it as the Sand Miner. Yeah. 
So they're harvesting minerals to uh, and shit to sell for money. 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 Uh, they have a jolly chat of about some stories of robots ripping people's arms off, uh, and then they all leave to chase a storm. We then cut to a gorgeous ca- uh, TARDIS console room with Leela playing with a yo-yo. Don't we? That's nice. It's very doc- brown. It is very brown. The Doctor and Leela then have a conversation about the TARDIS being bigger on the inside and how that's possible. Uh, crew, member, bleh, crew member Chubb then goes to collect a package and he can't lift it, so he calls for one of the robots and then that robot kills him. Poole hears the screams of Chubb and finds his body with a corpse marker or as a or a bicycle reflector, as we like to call them. The Doctor and Leela materialise in one of the mining ducts where the TARDIS gets removed. A robot comes to get the Doctor and Leela and lock them in a room where they escape from. Leela then sees Chubb's body being taken away by robots. The crew then suspects the two time travellers of murdering Chubb and everyone goes mental. When the two find out that they have escaped from the room and have separated, the Doctor wanders into a hopper where he finds a dead body of Carol. The hopper then fills with sand or chalk or something. And that's cliffhanger. Oh, like uh, wood bits. Yeah, wood chip or cork. I think it's cork. I've got it in my head that I've heard it somewhere that it's cork. Uh, Perhaps somebody could write in and let us know. Or not. Uh... First impressions, episode one. So I feel like I've seen a similar plot like this a few times now. Get away. Yeah, you, you got you know the workers. Oh, was that a joke? Yeah. Ah, oh, nice. Okay. You know, you got your workers working a group, and then are slowly picked off by an unknown entity. Uh, but I think this episode in particular is seen as very well you know it's very well regarded it is very well regarded yeah and a lot of new who takes inspiration from this as well uh the episode i think that takes most inspiration from this is a uh, voyage of the damned who the robot angels oh we all love that one. Oh, uh, <laughs> so you know I, I needed other things to impress me more than just the story of people getting picked off and I think it did. I I didn't like it as much as everyone else loves it. I know they love it. Uh, for me, it was a very well-told story. Well done. It just wasn't anything exceptional story-wise. Uh, well, it's not really, is it? Story-wise, they land somewhere, robots kill people, they find out what's happening, and then that's it. Hmm. You know? Um, it's everything else surrounding a story I think is exceptional you know as compared to other episodes it, I like the pacing as well oh it doesn't stop yeah it is paced it really stop, well it doesn't stop does it, it and, and that's actually a downside I think near the end that it doesn't stop <laughs> I I really struggled to make notes for this because I kept, I, I'm every time I watch The Robots of Death I'm so sucked mm. in that I, I press play and then it's the end of episode four. Like, I, I can't, I, I just concentrate on the story yeah. that much that I just can't do anything. Yeah. So it took me a good five or six goes of watching this to stop yeah. watching it. And you the, know. the story 
I don't think it is brilliant. It's not to say that's not good, uh, but how it's told, yeah, is great. It starts with an amazing model sequence of the sand miner, storm miner, oh, whatever yeah. we're going to call it. What are we going to call it? Should we call it sand the sand miner? miner? Sand miner. Sand yeah. miner. Yeah, that that opening model sequence is brilliant. Yeah. We've seen it quite a few times in these episodes. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's only two repeats, isn't there, of a sequence. Um, I think all the others are are different every time we see it. Um, But yeah, and then we cut to the bridge, and then we see the robots for the first time. The bridge? Yeah. Doesn't it look like an iPhone 3G on its side? (laughs) It does, doesn't it? I suppose so. You go back and look. I'll have a look. Oh, you... You go back and look. You won't get out your mind when you see it. <laughs> iPhone 3G on its side. Don't know how the hell they got that. Time travel, didn't Apple was doing that. Oh, Time travel. They got massive in the future, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Well, it's probably because it's further away, you know. If you put it closer, yeah, which is it. bigger over it, yeah. Um, so, but that doesn't uh, make any sense. Uh, <laughs> Trans-dimensional engineering. So, <laughs> we get the first look of the robots. What do you think? Now, I was uh, confused. It's like it's a weird, weird, wacky design for a robot, isn't it? Mm. It's not what I think of a robot. And I, I, I do have some notes of where the inspiration for like the whole sets and things. It is a very peculiar but brilliant set and props and things like that in this, this story. Yeah. It's a very memorable costume, isn't it? Well, yeah, because it's sort of... I think the whole design of the story is Art Deco... And Japanese kind mm. of thing. So the the robots are quite samurai, like their costumes are sort of samurai soldiery, mean, aren't yeah. they? And then the like design, masks. yeah. And then the design of the sets is a bit similar, where some things are quite Chinese Japanese, but have got a very Art Deco feel to them, aren't they? Yeah. Which sort Very of makes comfortable as well. Yeah, you know everything is there for a place. Which and it makes sense that they're on this sand miner for two years. I think they say, don't they? Yeah. So why would it be industrial and harsh? Yeah. You know, you'd you'd imagine it's more sort of cruise ship kind of thing. Yeah. Cruise ship vibes. Do you get what I mean? Um. So yeah, so I think it works well on that. You know. One of but, the set designers, I can't remember who it was, um, but he said the I think his brother or something went to the navy and he was on a navy merchant ship, and they were very much like that. The merchant ships were very, you know, quite nice to live in and mm. luxurious and things like that. Um, they said they got inspiration from that, and I think the robots and some of the costumes uh, they got inspiration from. I think they were made actually by the famous sculptor Chaparus. I've never heard of him. Oh, she? I've no idea who that is. I tried to look him up, but or her, I couldn't find anything. Oh, but I don't he know. was very much into everything being like sleek and smooth, um, and comfortable. Well, yeah, it is an unbelievably memorable design. Yeah, like those robots, those robot heads. There's somebody, I can't think of what the guy's name is. He follows us on Twitter, I think, uh, where he does reproduction heads, like masks and props from Doctor Who. 
and yeah. he's just finished doing uh, the robot heads. Oh, and nice. And it's such a memorable design. It's brilliant. Yeah. The only thing that lets the costume down slightly is that the the hands are quite obviously marigold gloves, aren't they? Uh, spray painted. Um, yeah. But you've yeah. always got to have something like goofy like that. Well, I th- it's one of those it's things. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then we cut to the TARDIS scene. What did you think of this TARDIS interior? This is—is is this your first time seeing this interior? Oh, I've seen Tom Baker before. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've seen the inside of the TARDIS though. I'm honestly not that keen on it. It's very brown. It is. I, th- I think it's gorgeous. Do you think so? Yeah, I suppose yeah. it's that uh, ornate wood oak varnished sort of thing. Yeah. What I got from it anyway. It's all right, yeah. Even the, the TARDIS, uh, what's the bit in the middle called? Do you know what that's called? Main, the, main the console. Console, that's it. Even that's, you know, everything blends into each other. And there's no real yeah, this, this definition is the, in this, uh, I don't think. This is the secondary console room. So this is like... What? Yeah, so this is the console room that he comes across and forgets that was there. It's like the backup console console room. So the main console room looks different. Yeah, the main console room looks how the main console room right, okay. looked. But this is the the uh, the secondary or the backup. I can't think of what they call it. I think it's the secondary console room. That makes sense. Because um, it wasn't very impressive. It was nice, but it wasn't I think it's brilliant. Or... Um why? The this console room I've always liked. The wooden console room. I remember the first time I saw it when it was probably this episode actually, where you think, "What, what on earth is going on here?" Because it doesn't look, no, you know, doesn't look anything like it. And interestingly, uh, Phil Cannon from the Who's He podcast is building a replica, I think, for his son or daughter. So it's, I think, it's half scale replica of this TARDIS console. Oh, and wow. I think he's about halfway through now as we're recording this. It looks brilliant as well, of this wooden console. I want it, to see it. It looks really, really good. I'll send you some photos of it. He posts it on Twitter every every couple of days when he's done something to it. It looks really, really good. So, uh, Phil, if I can uh, have that, that'd be great. I'm sure some won't mind. Just, yeah, they'll get tired of it, won't they? And then <laughs> yeah, I'll have it. Um but yeah, I really like the design of this um, design of the TARDIS, and then you get the speech, quite a famous scene from Classic Who, of explaining how the inside of the TARDIS is bigger than yeah. the outside. It's one of my favourite scenes of old Who I've seen so far. It's a great scene. It doesn't really make sense. Well, it, it, it makes make sense it. enough, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that? A- I believe it. <laughs> I can't really wrap my head around it because it doesn't make much sense, but it's probably because I'm not a Time Lord, so that's fine. Well, exactly, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, explain it, it in layman's terms so it won't make sense. Yeah, it makes sense enough, doesn't it? That it sort of mm-hmm. answers the question without you going, what? The... Yeah. <laughs> Only when you think about it after. You think, hang on. Yeah, yeah but no, it's still... It's already gone. It's still bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't... No, it doesn't work like that. Um... But yeah, I think that's a lovely scene. And what do you think of Leela? I think she's a great vehicle for the audience because she has no clue what's happening. This is the first time in an actual story as a companion, isn't it? I think so, yeah. 
Trying to think um, what came before this. Yeah, so her first appearance is the face of evil, which I think is the one before this. Right. Now, yeah, I do think she's that you know vehicle for the audience. Yeah. Good for info dumping, because she won't have any idea what's happening. That's my info dump noise. She won't have any idea what's happening, but let's explain everything to her. Uh, but they don't... I know at one part he does info dump the doctor, and he he just says at the end of like you're you do talk too much. Oh, that's great. They know what they're doing. Um, uh, yeah, she plays it well, whatever that means. Yeah, and I well, I don't. She won't be a standout companion for me. See, Leela's one of my favorites. Really? Yeah, I really, really like Leela. Mm. I just think she's such an interesting character and so well acted. You know, yeah. Louise Jameson is brilliant as Leela. And, no, well, knowing from sort of, from what's come out since she played the role, that Tom Baker was pretty horrible, if I'm right, with her when she started. Really? Yeah, because... He just lost Sarah Jane, who'd um, been like his companion from the beginning, from his start this of the is run. Third season, isn't it? Yeah. So, I just I think he just wasn't really happy about it. Although it does not come across on screen, and apparently Tom was really miserable filming this whole episode, this whole really? story. And again, that doesn't come across. He looks no, like he's he, having a load of fun. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. Which, <laughs> in later Tom Baker, when he is not having fun, it is very obvious he is not having fun. Oh, no. Um, I thought he was quite bubbly in this. Yeah, he's great. He's on absolute top form. Yeah. Like, this This is what Tom Baker is. Mm. Um, I really appreciate it. I think he's one of my favourites now. Yeah, and they bounce off each other so well. Mm. Even though apparently they don't or didn't, you know, they get on fine now, but um, they're all made up now, you know. Everything's go fine. around for tea and stuff. Oh, I know, all the time. COVID secure, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, and then we hear some of the music from Dudley. Well, we've heard it from the beginning. No, yeah, this this is a really really memorable score for me, anyway. Whether it's just because I know the story really well because I've seen it so many times but the music is fantastic there's that heartbeat music whenever anything's about to happen dunk 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 it's like a kettle drum and I think it's a cello that are playing like a little pattern a little ostinato brilliant it's really really good (laughs) and this is the sort of this is like Dudley Simpson at his height of his power as well. Like everything at this era has come together. And Dudley has this at this point is still using synths, but he's also using his little chamber orchestra as well. So it's a nice mix of weird sounds and acoustic stuff. Which is really, really nice. And the the music from this is brilliant. The whole story. What's your favourite track in it? Um probably the tension scenes with the heartbeat. 
dun dun. Uh, but yeah, I don't know whether this exists as an isolated score. I don't think it does, but I'm sure it is on YouTube somewhere. There's a lot of the scores are put put up on YouTube. Um, yeah, then we move into the sort of the who done it scene, uh, where they've discovered the body and all of the the guest cast are all in there in the sort of communal room. I suppose that's what you call it. Yeah, all of the guest cast are great. Yeah. Which is quite rare, I'd say, for Old Who, where sometimes you get some hammy actors. But for the most part, they're all great. There's one slight slight exception that that we will get into, and he's not that he's not great. I just can't really take him very seriously. I think we're thinking of the same guy. What's his name? Pool. Uh, Pool, he's the one with the robophobia. The only reason I can't take him seriously is because I keep thinking it's Eric Idle. Just because he looks like Eric Idle. It's not that he's a bad actor. I think he does a really good job. But every time I see him, I keep thinking it's Eric Idle. Yeah, I can see what you mean. Uh, He's very uh, charismatic in this episode. Yes. Yes. I I honestly thought he was probably one of the weaker ones. I suppose so. You could see it that way. I just think, yeah, I just I think mean, this, you, the story's great. Let's just I, you, let me just get it out. God, this is brilliant. Do you <laughs> the, like it? Oh you? God, it's it's perfect. Everything about this is great. I'd argue it's not perfect. <laughs> I'd argue it isn't. I'd say, no, this is pretty damn good, isn't it? Yeah, it's still a 10 out of 10. So should we just wrap it up there and just give a colour? Yeah. Uh, um, is... Yeah, so... Well, right, so it, you mentioned, like, a whodunit. Yes. Um, I've seen some comparisons. It's kind of like an Agatha Christie sort of thing. Yeah, it is, um, yeah. I would have liked it not to be called Robots of Death. I think it sort of gives away who done it straight away, and we're just waiting for the characters to figure it out. Well, it's th- nice to watch it, you know, on its own. Well, really, it it isn't the robots doing it, is it? No, it's not. It's more of like who is commanding the robots yes. to do it. Yes, and if you've got a keen um, eye, you work that out pretty much straight away. Yeah, but um. So yeah, we get some nice character development of Leela when they go into the office bedroom quarters where she's jumping on the chairs and she gets really excited when she works something out when the doctor's explaining things and she sort of works out the answer early. Yeah. That's really nice. Um, the commander yeah. is brilliant. He's my favourite character in all this. And who are you? He um He walks that line of sort of any further and it's overacting. I completely disagree. I think he plays it very naturally. Do you? Yeah. It's nice to see a character who would play. It just seems like he, he's like that in real life. Mm. It's, oh, I thought it was lovely. The way he communicates with the, the crew and how you know his, his sole objective is to make money. And oh, that scene when um one of the crew, I can't remember who it was, but they spoke back to him and saying, command your robots instead or something. And that look he gave him. Oh, it's lovely. Mm. 
And then we cut to the cliffhanger, really, at the end of the story, isn't it? Um, Where the Doctor enters the hopper and finds another dead body. Now, Tom apparently was really, really not happy with this cliffhanger, and he didn't want to do it. So he wanted to have a more action ending, where he swings from his scarf and knocks the door open to sort of get out. But um, he agreed to do it when he was told that the producer was going to be there when he was filming the scene. And he just said, all right, okay, yeah, I'll do it. What? Don't know. All right. So it's he, a different time. He was dead against it. Dead, dead against I'm not doing it. And then they said, oh, actually, Graham Williams is going to be there whilst we're doing it. All right, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. What's that producer done to him? God knows. Give him a good smack if you don't do it. And then we cut to um, we cut to episode two. Mm. Uh, so the Doctor survives getting buried alive by the cork by using a blowpipe. The Doctor, Leela, who has now discovered a third body, um, a dumb robot, are recaptured. The Commander orders the Doctor and Leela to be locked up in a robot storage, which looks absolutely unescapable. I don't know how on earth they'll ever escape from those metal shackles that they're held in. Poole then comes to free the Doctor and Leela, believing their story, and shows them where Chubb was murdered. The Doctor then convinces Poole the robots murdered him. Whilst this is happening, uh, Zilda is killed, just after accusing the commander of murder over the Tannoy. Sorry, the PA. It's a public address. Tannoy is a brand. Please do not forget that. Uh, Poole then finds Yuvanov uh, with Zilda's body and confines him to his quarters, thinking that he's murdered her. We then cut to the bridge where the shit is really hitting the fan. Borg, who controls the power to the motors, has been killed and the sand miner starts to overdrive. Everyone starts to panic and two screams, She's going! And that's episode two. Um, there's there's some CSO when they're in the hopper, where or the sort of the corridor before the hopper that looks real. I couldn't work out that it was CSO. What CSO? Color separation overlay, like early green screen. Oh yeah, and the th- the only thing that gives it away that it isn't real, I think, is that there's quite. There's some um, microchips, like circuit boards, that are on the wall of the the model of where the CSO is keyed in. That give it away, I think, that it's not an actual set. Because I thought, this is massive. How on earth? Where is this filmed? This huge place. But it is CSO. It is CSO. I like the snorkel as well, where the Doctor managed to... <laughs> A little snorkel popping up. Yeah, I like that. God's sake. I'm sure as easy as that snorkel was to push up through all that rubble, you could have just got up. Well, I've never drowned in cork. cork. I've never (laughs) drowned in cork before. Tom gets some great lines as well. And Leela, to be fair. Well, everybody. But yeah, Tom and Leela especially get some great, very memorable things to say. Yeah. Um, I liked it when the robot grabs Tom. And he and he what he says um, easy easy don't get excited. Mm. And Leela's Leela's got a usual don't try that uh, try that again and I'll cripple you. 
Is that when she kicks? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Kicks him right in the family jewels. Oh, it's great. Whop. Yeah, I've got, I've got some great quotes from Tom Baker we're talking about, yeah? Yes. Got some great quotes, quotes from the Doctor in this one. Um, my favourite is Would You Like a Jelly Baby? Joe and uh, they're all talking about what they do with these intruders. They must yeah, be murderers. Yeah, he smacks them away, doesn't he? Oh, it's so good. Uh, and he has that confrontation as well. When Borg like confronts him and he says, "Oh, sorry, I thought it was a rhetorical question." Oh, I love how he treats the drama in this in in this story. You, he, yeah, you get slightly put off the scent at that point as well, don't you? Where Borg strangles him. Yeah. So, quite a few times, where there's a matter of urgency or drama or confrontation, he always acts silly or indifferent in some way and I love that there's a moment in I'm skipping ahead but in episode 4 where the robots are on the PA and so they all need to stay there and they're all going to die or something and he's just scratched his nose mm. oh, I love little touches like that he's great and it, he is it really, really, really good commands the scene like he he always acts like the smartest person in the room, and when he talks, you know he is. Mm. It's a lovely way of delivering a doctor. It's awesome. He's always got that presence, even in the later seasons that he has, where he's he's quite clearly he's had enough. Oh, but he's still got that. He still has that presence. He's there's a thing about him when he's on screen that you can't not look at him. Because he's just got this thing, yeah. you know. And the, like I say, there's a reason why whenever Doctor Who is on other, in other media, it is always Tom. Yeah, it's the only yeah. one I've really known about classic. Yeah, and it's the only one that ever, anybody ever knows about. Yeah. Is when people say Doctor Who, it's the man with the curly hair and the scarf. And scarf, yeah. You know, it's, it's just what it is, isn't it? So what are your favourite quotes from him? In this episode, there's just loads of them. There's too many to list, and there always is in his early era. There's speeches that he has, like in the Ark in Space, he's got a few. He's got loads of stuff. Genesis of the Daleks, all of his early stories have all got great, great speeches from him, and he delivers everything so well. Because he always, Tom always says that he was never acting playing the Doctor, he was just reading the lines. And I think it comes across, really, because he doesn't seem to be trying. You know, when sometimes you can see people acting? He doesn't seem to be doing a lot. It could be argued as just playing it naturally. I suppose, yeah. I do I do I, sort of believe him that that's what he's like, bar all the filthy jokes, because he is very... He's very blue. Is he? He is very blue. Um... But no, yeah, he's he's brilliant. He's great. He isn't my favourite Doctor, I will say, but you can't fault him in this. And for most of his run, really, till about the halfway point, you can't really fault him because he's so on the ball. Yeah. He's on top form, and he's such a commanding presence every time you see him. Yeah. He's just great. This is... Um... 
And this is a time when it's one of the few times when when the Doctor isn't on screen, I pine for him to come back. Yeah. Like, I get excited when he's finally back on screen. Uh, it rarely happens for me. Yeah. And with New Who, it rarely happens. But fantastic. We then move to the cell um, where the Doctor and Leela are uh, tied up. Um, there's one point here which probably in Leela's whole run, which isn't that long to be fair, it's like a season and two stories or a season and three stories that she gets. The one slip-up of Louise Jameson's acting is the thank you, which has always confused me and I've seen... I've I've heard other podcasts comment on this as well, and I'm not jumping on the bandwagon. I've always thought that it's a weird delivery. So when Poole releases her, she says, thank you. <laughs> and it's just very weird. It's it's really not what Leela would do. Yeah. And it's probably thinking about it too much, isn't it? Like nobody would care. But it's just I know, it, I, did, I didn't pick up on that. It's the one slip up for me in Louise Jameson's whole run as Leela. She doesn't put a foot wrong anywhere else. She's brilliant. This just Is this still of the age where they can only really film once? Or is that earlier on? Uh I would imagine it's probably you could maybe a few takes. Cause a lot yeah. of the Hartnell and Troughton stuff it was live in the sense of you did it in, from what I know, I think it's like 12-minute chunks. Okay. So you have to do it in this chunk, and that's why it's just so much of a faff to re-record yeah. re- it. And there isn't editing, really. You get one edit of fade-out into the next section. So, yeah, it must have been a nightmare. And when you think about it, you know, 10 years, well, only a few years previous to Hartnell, to 1963, TV was live, like, you know, like just essentially a play, but on screen. Must have been terrifying. You know. That's horrible. Yeah. So, but at this point, I'm guessing there's, uh, you know, more ability to be edited there. Um, it was just less mistakes, isn't it? Yeah, in this episode, like it's impossible to get it this perfect without them. Yeah, it, yeah, it must be. So there, there is something definitely going on, isn't there? Um, we then cut to a terrible scene of Zilda crying. It doesn't last that long, though. It no, but it's it is dreadfully acted. I don't mind her in anything in all the other scenes. I think she's quite good. But the crying yeah. is terrible. And to be fair, she's probably thankful that she snuffed it because everybody's just digging at her all the time. Aww. You know, and your family. Well, it, when you see 10 out of 10, perf- it can't be. You know, there are, there are flaws. And granted, they're not that major. She does get killed off. I mean, nothing lasts for too long. It's not like a main character is dreadful. Luckily, the main characters are all excellent. Yeah, they're brilliant. Um, but it's it's sad when a character like her is worse, is more badly act, more badly acted than the robots, mm. who are like one dimensional things. Yeah, that have no emotion. That's a you know, it's a cause of concern, I'd say. 
Yeah, I think I don't mind her. I just think that the crying is awful. <laughs> it's really bad. Um, it's haunting. Yeah, it's that very haunting. And then for once in Doctor Who, there's some good physical acting. You know, when the sand miner tilts at the end, at the near mm. the cliffhanger. Everybody does that really well, and they remember they to knock stuff over in the set. Yes. Like the chairs I, are over the place, mm-hmm. and you know, rather than them oh, falling, yeah. but nothing else. Which is... Uh, I th- yeah, I think I said I said that in a previous episode where what sells it is the set, even the set, you know. Yeah. If everything's glued in place, or you just turn the camera, it looks horrific. Mm. It's awful, these characters like wailing their arms around. Yeah, so, I think they paid such close attention to the set. Yeah, I think they did. When you see Tom and Leela fall over, I'm assuming that they both kick the chairs as they go. Yeah, because I can't think the only other way is that they're on you know Fisher wire, isn't it? And they pull as they tilt. But it's probably just easier for Tom to kick one and Leela to kick another. You know, um, that works really well. And all of the cliffhangers in the story are great. There's some cliffhangers in in old Who that don't really don't really make make you want to wait a week to watch the next <laughs> one. Whereas these, I think all these cliffhangers are great. Mm. Two times the Doctor almost dies. Yeah, always gets strangled, always getting buried by cork. I mean, what a way to go! And then we're into episode three. So the Doctor saves the miner from exploding and killing the entire cast and crew by cutting the power lines. Um, the miner begins to s- the miner begins to sing. That's not what happens. The miner sink. begins to sink. So Dask gets to work repairing it so they all don't suffocate underground, which would be bad, that wouldn't it? The Doctor then goes to meet the dumb robot D eighty four that Leela told him can speak. D84 then explains that he and Poole are undercover agents for the mining company because of concerns about a robot revolution by scientists called Taran Capel, who was raised by robots, 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 and considers himself one too. Shit. The wow. Doctor and D84 then search for proof that Taran Capel is on board and discover a workshop where the robots are being altered to kill the humans. The Doctor then tells all the humans to get back to the command deck. The commander escapes confinement and sees that a robot has entered the workshop, saying it has orders to kill the Doctor, and grabs him by the throat. So that's episode three. Um... It's just great. <laughs> oh, it's... First off, I want to mention D84. Yes. And the Doctor's interaction with him. Please do now... not throw hands at me. <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting that the Doctor treats him almost like he's a living being, but he's just limited by what his functions limit him to be. Yeah. You know, what, what he's programmed to be. Um, I think we not re- we don't really see much of the Doctor's interactions with his relationship with robot things and mechanical things, and I think it's it's interesting because the TARDIS is very much that a mechanical thing well, that's somehow alive. We do sort of get that with K nine, 
That is true. Which is very I, soon. I would love to see an older... I've never seen K-9 in anything but the school reunion episode in New Who. Yeah, and um, I think in that story, he is just sort of shoehorned in. Yeah. Because Sarah yeah. Jane owns him, you know. It's just a thing to sort of appease everybody. Yeah. Um, I think that's why I picked up on this, because, uh, you know, apart from the TARDIS, you don't really see that relationship with a robot. Yeah. Um, and he's the only one who really treats the robot as something that has feelings as well. Yeah. Which it's, I thought was really interesting. It is a bit interesting, isn't it? That Well, supposedly, D84 was considered to become a companion. Oh, that would have been awesome. See, I disagree. <laughs> I it don't. Would have been, it, I would have liked for him to uh, see his reaction in it. Maybe it's more of a big finish thing. Yeah. Well, this world has been explored in an audio play. Okay. Or audio series. Um. The main thing I think wouldn't that wouldn't have worked with D eighty four being a companion is the slow delivery. Yeah. And I think that would get very wearing very quickly, whereas, you know, and I think you need a human companion, really, or humanoid companion. Just Maybe him with, like, um, Leela. Maybe it could work if he is only on the TARDIS. Yeah, something like that. Because I just think if you take that that character to a different world and you're running around corridors and he's got... Where are we going? Mm. And it just... Ugh, yeah, the delivery wouldn't work. I think it, no. if it was a different style of delivery for all of the robots, maybe it could work. But then again... Nah, just leave him. Leave him where he is. Um, also, i tell you what is something that did jar straight jump out at me. When Toos uh, hurts her arm... And it's bleeding, isn't it? Or it yeah. appears bleeding. They wrap it up in like glitter material. How painful would that be? You know, having glitter. The glitter getting in there. Yay! Oh, like sand. Yeah. Oh, Awful. It's horrific. Awful. Um, and this episode obviously has the big giveaway if you're watching that it is Dask giving the orders to SV7. Um, obviously not the first time this is guessed, but this is the main point at which yeah we all know, you know, that it is Dask who is Taran Capel. I think you got to say it like that. Quite, haven't you? He kept reminding me of an actor. Well, David Bailey, who plays him, is the actor that we have just sadly lost. Oh no! Uh, and I really? think he's really good in this. There's there's one moment that's really chilling. It's horrible. Can't remember. Is it in this episode or no? It's in episode four when they break into the bridge, and he screams, "Let me in!" It's yeah. horrible. I yeah, it's awful. Yeah, in a good <sighs> way. In a good way. Oh yeah, definitely in a good way. And the sets, you know, we haven't said a lot about the sets really. I think they're great. You know, so memorable. Yeah, it's got a definite feel about it. You know, the whole design of everything. And the sand miner feels big. You know, from the moment yeah, when, does, you, when you see it in the first scene and then it cuts to that little slit 
that's yeah. the um up at the bridge you get a feel of how big this thing is and then when you go inside you do sort of get a sense that this is a big you know a big unit just the use of those corridors as well yeah and shooting um, them from different angles you know and i think it's in the fourth episode where dask and his other robots are just traveling look at these corridors trying to find yeah uh the you know the rest of the cast it's got a lovely feel to it. I think what gives it a nice feel as well is that the corridors, you can see staircases. Mm, leading yeah. somewhere. Doors go into somewhere. I think that really helps, because I think normally in Doctor Who, we're just used to corridors, you know, just yeah. a straight corridor, where it's like, yeah. or with a lift at the end. And some it doesn't really give it that feel of a multi-level thing, but even like with the command yeah. deck... You get the deck at the top. You get the stairs coming down to like the main section where there's that little console. Then all of the corridors have steps. You get yeah. you have steps to go. All of the rooms are multi-level. So the bedrooms, you've got that like walk around, and then you've got the lower section yeah. with the t- seats and everything. It just works so well. You know, and it the just... characters constantly refer to this place as well. Like I'm going to go to my quarters. Yeah, and, you know things like that. It's great. All the way all through. All works together. Yep. And I also want to mention the, the how the multi-cameras are used as well mm. uh, with these sets, because usually they feel, I always feel like the like old Who, um, like earlier on, this, it's very rigid and almost claustrophobic. Yeah. How, um, it's very staged as well, isn't it? Yeah. But goodness, the cameras are having a field day here. They're everywhere. Yeah, there is. It is there's a lot of it. And the hopper scenes, that's all on film, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, yeah, they shoot from all sorts of angles in this as well. It's really nicely done. Mm. And the sets work with that as well. Yeah. It's almost like these sets were built around the cameras. Mm. It's very strange. It's really good. The You'll see... Um, are you familiar with, like, uh, lines in a shot in blocking? No. <laughs> so... I'm not very good at explaining this, but basically uh, it's the line of like vision of where your eyes are set, like the center of the shot. Mm. Um, very, very, like a corridor is a good example. So when you put a camera down a corridor, where are your eyes going to go? Mm. Down the corridor. You're not going to look at the door, are you, on the left? Only, yeah, only like looking at it for a while. So those lines of leading your, you know, your eyesight down a path. Mm. And I just feel like the sets really compose a lovely shot that's why i'm thinking like it, it almost like the sets are built around the camera not the camera's just placed on a stage yeah um and they go everywhere they're high up they're low uh, it goes fast it goes slow it goes up it know? goes down oh it's brilliant um yeah they're often very restrictive and tight and controlled uh to save money really save time and money yeah and that's why in Modern shooting, you'll use one camera in mm. you know, New Who. It's just cheaper and the technology's better. You can get anywhere around a, a, a shot or a set or something like that. Yeah. A shot, a set. Um, well, it's lovely. Mm. So angular, so complementary. It's great. It's great. It's one of my favorite things about this, this, this story. Hmm. There's some lovely lines in this story as well, in this episode, rather. Um, 
where the doctor's talking to D84. He says, would you like to come with me? He says, yes, please. Oh. Oh. I love D84. this Whoever played D84. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's just really good. It is, though, isn't it? And then there's, that, there's, uh, there's a little funny scene, isn't there, where D84 says, I heard a cry. It was me. I heard, I heard a, a cry. cry. It was me. I heard a cry. It was me. I heard a cry. <laughs> and it's just, that, it's one of those yeah. things, isn't it, with comedy, where you say it enough that it's funny, but you don't go too far, you know, where it starts to become not funny. Yeah. And they do that really well. Or do it again, so it starts to become funny. That again. is not funny anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, um, yeah, it's done so I well. I want to touch on the robots, though. Go on. Very interesting t- uh, choice going for human voices for robots. I think, if you think yeah. of like Daleks and Cybermen and stuff like that, it's, uh, Daleks aren't robots, but... Cybermen aren't robots either. They're not, are they? No. <laughs> I don't know any other robots, really. Yeah. Apart from New Who, so... Sorry about that. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, robots usually have a very robotic-sounding voice. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a filter on them all the time, so mm-hmm. stuff like that. And they didn't in this. Mm. And I think that was an incredible choice. Yes. Because if you have a somber, flat tone of a voice that seems indifferent to every situation they're in, apart from we need to kill someone or something, it's a, a nasty feeling of something so cold, calculated, and so indifferent to the you know whatever they're set to do. Yeah. It's terrific. Yeah, it's... I think the whole design of the robot and the aesthetic and the voice and performance, mm. it's so memorable. And the, yeah. Well, you use that voice uh, with the scene we just talked about where I heard a scream. You yeah. know, it adds this characteristic to the robot where you're like, oh, he's so dumb. He's so cute, isn't he? Yeah. How. You know, he, he he's so unaware of his surroundings, and that's nice. It's not horrific anymore. It's so many ways you can use it. Where if it's just a, a, a generic robot tone, mm. I just don't think it would have that same effect. No, it, I don't think it would. No. It's yeah. a great choice. It's so much better oh, like this. With their performance, it's strange how... Well, it's not strange. I quite liked how... When they were talked to, they were animated. They start moving and moving like a human. And as soon yeah. the minute someone stops speaking to them or they know that no one's listening, they go right back to the upright pose. Yeah. In like the default standby mode. Mm. Brilliant. It's nice. It's so well so thought memorable. through. Yeah. You know. Um, there's a weird bit where Leela throws the dagger at the robot. So she throws a dagger into the stomach of the robot. And on the DVD version, the dagger just hits the robot and he brushes it away and you get a metallic sound. On the VHS, one of the copies of the VHS that I've got, I've checked. One no. copy, she throws the knife and as it hits, it goes... Doing. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, it's awful. And I think from memory, it's an Australian copy to make it ah. less 
because I think in us in down under, their censoring is a bit more strict. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So I think to get away from the sort of thud of it going, thump, they were they just went Ding! like cartoonish. Yes, just to sort of like give a sense that this is not a person, you know. Yeah. Um, which was really weird. <laughs> I love stuff like that. Yeah. Weird bits. Um, and then we find out about Pool having uh, robophobia. <laughs> oh, it's just the weakest thing of all this. It was right. a bit. It's an odd decision, isn't it? That somebody who has come to investigate robots taking over has, is scared of robots. It's insinuated that the robots are everywhere in the civilization. Like, I think the doctor says you can't live with them. No, you need them. What did he Do you remember that quote? Yeah, he, he says say? something, doesn't he? Like, you can't live without them, but yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Everybody else so knows I, what I think you mean. Yeah, everyone else. <laughs> anyway, I think it's insinuated that these robots are everywhere in the civilization, not only on the Steiner. Mm. Um. So we could have developed some robophobia, and you obviously can't get away from it if they're everywhere, and especially they would be in a workplace. Yeah. It doesn't matter where he'd work. Well, they there's a nice little in-joke as well, because the, they say robophobia, and then the doctor calls it Grimwade syndrome. What's that? So that's referring to Peter Grimwade, the, who was a writer, director, and producer on Doctor Who, who was always no. moaning that he got the robot stories... And I think uh, I is think that, he's is that did he say that Tom Baker yeah yeah he story? says yeah he says Grimwade syndrome is that in the script yeah 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 it's in as a as a as what an in joke that's weird isn't it yeah. very meta it's I like that though I think it's funny yeah Grimwade syndrome it'd be nice if New Who like hacked back to that a little bit just sort of called it Grimwade syndrome because I think Jody talks about robophobia somewhere I'm sure I've heard it. Just oh, been it's nice. too cinematic. You can't break it now. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I just think, it, yeah. Oh well. Um, I like that. It, yeah. That's what I like about old who. It's a bit looser, isn't it? It is. Yeah, a bit loosey goosey. Yeah, but it's just it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's it's just great, and this story's brilliant. But anyway, we're not at the end yet. <laughs> <laughs> Episode four: The Doctor and the Commander head to the control deck. Someone then deactivates all the robots that haven't been altered, leaving the kill of robots and D84 in operation. Leela then finds Poole, who's hiding and suffering from robophobia. She then tracks down Toos, who's in her quarters, rather, who's just been attacked by a robot. Everyone is now on the bridge. D84 tells them to come out and die. Toos and the commander decide to defend themselves. Dask is then revealed to be Taran Capel. Uh, Taran then orders the robots to kill the humans, the Doctor and Leela. The Doctor finds a damaged robot with bloodied hands. Blood, he assumes, to be Borgs, because he seems to be the only person who'd be able to sort of fight off a robot, because he's a big unit, he's a big lad. He then dismantles a damaged robot to make the final deactivator. The Doctor heads back to the workshop where he hides Leela in a cupboard with a jar of with a canister of helium telling her to open it when Taran comes in so the robots won't recognise his voice. What a clever little thing. 
Taran comes in and damages D84, but he is just able to activate the Doctor's device to destroy the killer robot, sacrificing himself in the process. Taran then is killed by SV7, who can't recognise his voice. The Doctor then shoves a laser-sun probe into SV7, killing him. With the threat over and a rescue ship on its way, the Doctor and Leela leave in the TARDIS, bound for another wonderful adventure in time and space. Next stop, Blackpool. The Talons of Wang Chiang. So what do you think of episode four? The shit has really hit the fan now, yeah, isn't no, it? it is, yeah. <laughs> it's all kicking off now. Brilliant. The hunters are getting hunted. Oh. It's mm. time for the hunters to become the hunters. What? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. One thing I have noticed, this is a little side note, Tom Baker always carries people with such ease. Like when he's got to pick people up. He does that yeah. quite a lot in his era where he's always carrying people. And he does it so easily. It's really weird. That you'd imagine carrying people. Is, oh, you're saying that he, yeah, he's not as an really actor. strong. He must be. Because he's quite a big unit, isn't he? He's fairly burly. I wonder how tall he is. Let's let me just Google it. I just want to Google Six it. Six foot two. Do you reckon? Yeah. Tom. Yeah, I do. Baker. Height in feet. Five foot one. He's six foot three. <laughs> what did I say? Six foot two. Fuck. Very close. He's eighty seven as well now. Tall. Oh, he's still going, is he? He's still going. He's look. Brilliant. He's starting to look. Uh, he's thinning by the day, and I hope everything's all right. But he has gone to look very frail in recent years. I've seen um, a Q and A with him talking about this, and he looked meaty. Uh, yeah, he did pile on some timber at one point, but <laughs> recently he has gone to look very frail. Um. And it is worrying, because that will be, not to be too morbid, but that will be a hell of a sad day. Um, I'm almost tearing up thinking of it now. Um, oh, i just seen a picture of Tom Baker and Matt Smith in the same scene. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. You'll get what to that. What does that mean? You'll get to what that. What does that mean? You'll get what to it. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, he's an author, is he? He does, He has written a few books, yeah. Scratchman. Hmm. It's a Doctor Who novel. He also wrote a children's book about... I can't think what it is. Children's book. Yeah, he, he did write a children's about book. About dreams, well. wasn't it? I don't know. No, I'm sure it was about a pig. He wrote like a, was about... a children's children's book at one point. About everyone has that same dream where you, you get out of bed, someone grabs you. Oh, God's sake. Fuck off. Um, yeah, this episode built so well that I just, I f- keep forget. I just completely forgot to write any notes. It's very quick. It, it's, this is the quickest one of all. It's scary, isn't it? How much goes on in this episode? Uh, again, I'm going to talk about Tom. He does pain better than any other actor I think I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. Tom Baker's pain is second to none. It's when he gets strangled, is this? You, well, you, you see it when he gets strangled. You see it when he's um, 
getting probed. Ooh, uh. um, <laughs> but yeah, all through his run as well, whenever he's in any sort of pain, being mind controlled or whatever, God, he just does it so well. So convincing. Maybe they put a little pin in their hands. Maybe. So every time they grab him, he's. They probably oh, what they probably do shock. is they just they hold his cigarettes and his pint of bitter, and they pour them away in front of him. Oh no! <laughs> and that's it. That's enough to send Mister Baker over the edge. <laughs> God, it sounds like that, and with the producer, he's under lock and key in that yeah, studio. He can't do anything. <laughs> But oh, this episode is brilliant. It's so good you can't even say what happened because there's that much that happens. It's just packed full this episode. And I think to some extent it's a bit of a disservice to the episode because it ends very abruptly. Well, that's that's the biggest note I've got for episode four. That they just leave. That's it. Yeah. They don't there's there no tying no... up loose ends. But then again, there's some stories that I really enjoy that, especially in Troughton's run, where they deal with what they've dealt with and they say, right, we'll let them get on with it now and we'll go. So I think it's a bit, it's sort of that idea. It's sort of, like we, we've dealt with this now. We're going. There's just no conclusion for the rest of the cast. I would have liked that. That is the one, that is the one draw that you don't get to see the survivor's view. No. Um. Yeah, God, it's just great, and we've already said about um Dask as Taron Capel when he does the "Let Me In." Yeah, oh, that is chilling as hell. It's brilliant. Um, D eighty four. This is where he says the "Please do not throw hands at me." What a memorable line! It's brilliant. Everybody's got such great memorable dialogue in this. Um. When a doctor confronts uh, Taron Capel as well, uh, saying that uh, something like uh, "You're not a robot," you know, and robots yeah. can never be truly free and stuff like that, or something like that. And he says, uh, "I shall pro- program them with. I shall program them with ambition to rule the world." Yeah, like, I love that line because it's just such a contradiction. Yeah. All right, pipe down. They'll be free. They'll be free, but I'll program them to be free. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, well, what do you oh, think of the what do you think of the, like the premise of how they get him killed off with the helium? The main thing I remember about the helium was at the end where she the doctor opens the cupboard door and she's in there. <laughs> Will somebody oh. let me out? It's nice to see a bit of comedy in there. I guess I think it's great. Yeah, I really yeah. think it's great. I think it's because it, 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 right after that scene, the credits rolled. Does that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, it's put me in a bad mood. The ending is very abrupt. Yeah. But uh, it's just great. So what, do you, what do you think of the... Where they kill them off? I, I think it's the only real... The only sort of plausible way that you could have done it. Yeah. You know, you've got to find a way that the robots aren't going to recognise him. They still know what he looks like, though. That's the only thing. Yeah, and it, that is something they pick up on. Because the Doctor escaped before... Uh, earlier by putting a scarf in his hat on one yes. of the Does he get them back? Yeah, well, I think he walks out with it at the end, doesn't he? He must have got it somehow. He's probably grabbed it on the way. But <laughs> yeah, so that's a slight drawback on it, but I suppose that the whole pace is that 
they're just going to kill somebody now, so that doesn't sound like him will kill. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's the only way that they would have really... The tension is so high at that point in the story that I think it's probably just kill, kill, kill. <laughs> I would have seen the <laughs> scene where Capel puts his makeup on. Yeah, oh yeah. He did a pretty good job with doing that. He does all right, doesn't he? Must have a mirror. Unless one of the robots did it for him. Or it's just like a sort of face mask that he puts on. That's a good idea, yeah. He's got save time in his room. Just save time. I will say that the world building in this, before we'd wrap up what we think of this one, the world building is great. And the whole sort of where this story is set is Caldor City. And I think we touched on this before, that apparently there's some audio dramas that I haven't listened to. And I'm not sure that whether they're BBC dramas or Big Finish. I would assume they're Big Finish. Because, you know, say it three times and Big Finish will do it. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, that'd be nice to see. And I'm, I'm surprised that this world hasn't been, hasn't been delved back into in Who. It's one of the most famous episodes as well. Yeah. And it seems like these robots would fit with a bit of a bit of tweaking into New Who quite nicely. Yeah, it's but I was thinking that when I was watching this this whole story is very easily like translatable to yeah. New Who. There's not much to out the realms of not being in New Who. Yeah, it's you know, it's great. Really good. I think if it was New Who it would probably go into those family values but i think it would work yeah there's there are some family value scenes in this aren't there really i suppose where you get uh zilda we find out about her family that they were the sort of forefathers sort of thing or like the the uh how do they refer to it that her family were the sort of the founders I think. Yeah, I remember that, yeah, yeah. We get some sort of world building on that, but it's not in too in-depth to make you make sort of me roll my eyes. But, no, you know, it's enough that it fleshes the characters out a bit without you getting too involved. Yeah, and not that they would want to, because what's the point of fleshing them out if you don't give them a... Yeah, exactly. We, we She's only doesn't. in it for two episodes, isn't she? You know, yeah. we're killing them off. Why flesh it out to... I suppose the argument would be you flesh it out to make you care. So when they die, it has more of an impact. Well, I was talking more about just the end. What's the point in fleshing any of them out if you never see their conclusion to the episode? Like, what happened to Paul? Did he? Was he? Is he all right? I don't think so. I think it's probably a lifetime in care. I suppose it's one fear, and it comes true, and they all kill yeah. humans. Uh, I just would like to have seen what happened to my favorite character, Yuvanov. I think that's what annoyed me at the end. Not too much to just make the whole episode break down. Um, I don't know. This just one day I want to watch a Doctor Who episode that is flawless. One day I think I will. I will have. Maybe it's already already been made, but I just haven't seen it yet. Mm. Every single one I've seen has some flaw. That brings it down. Have you ever watched anything that's perfect that you consider to be perfect? No, nothing is perfect. No, but in saying... but in your mind, like, have you ever watched a film 
it doesn't have to be Doctor Who related. Have you ever watched anything and thought you couldn't improve that? That's as good as that would get. It's got to be something done by Kubrick. Because if I don't get it or think it's bad in some way, then I must just not get it because I trust that man with my life. Wow. (laughs) The things he crafts in scenes is just insane. Uh, So I consider probably one of those, maybe like Clockwork Orange or Eyes Wide Shut, something like that. Apart from that, maybe her. I know it's a student's wet dream, her, but (laughs) I can't deny it's a fantastic film. Um, But yeah, of course, everything has a flaw somewhere, but I'm talking about major (laughs) flaws that just don't need to be there. So. I think the most irate thing for classic who is that the small things that could have been changed in seconds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but yeah, I just like to see a Doctor Who episode. Oh, I suppose uh, Caves of Androzani. Yeah, there's uh, there's a few of them. There's Spearhead from Space, Talons of Wenchiang. I'd probably say I don't agree with Spearhead from Space, but Caves of Androzani for sure. I think it's my favourite Doctor Who episode I've seen of old Who. Yeah, there's... I think it's fantastic. What else is there? Well, there's a few of them. There's a few of them. I'd argue Tomb of the Cybermen probably is pretty close to perf- perfect. The invasion, um, the Daleks. Well, we'll get we'll get into this as we. <laughs> <laughs> as we delve. Um, so let's wrap this up then. Final thoughts before you give a rating? Or final thoughts and give a rating? Memorable. Yes. Sad to see it go. I'd like the robots to return in the future, which I don't think they do, do they? No. Sad. Um, let down by a few things. Nothing drastic or anything like that. But main th- criticism for me was that ending. What a shame. Um, other than that, utterly enjoyable. Big thumbs up. Green. Nice. Uh, I'm just going to say it's it's glorious. Green, green, green. Doctor Who in its prime. Yeah. Tom Baker at the height of his powers. It's brilliant. That's all I can say. <laughs> that's all. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's glorious. Fantastic. Well, should we see what some other people think of those two stories? I, I want. I especially want to see what they think about listen. Well, uh, we'll have a look what uh, some people say, and then we'll let you know what stories we're doing next. Should we do a bit of feedback? Okay. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I'll go first. This is from Kim Haley. Uh, this is about Robots of Death. This made a profound impact on me as a wee child watching it. It was fantastic. 
eye-opening, a little scary, but profound. Introduce me to the concept of AI. Gone bad, of course. Yeah. It's a nice idea. I agree. I've heard that. This is one of the first episodes a lot of people have watched. It tends to be the one of the first ones people remember, I think. Ah. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm, do you know what? I'm always jealous of my younger self. Yeah. You know, the first time that I watched this. I wish I could go back to, you know, like the first time you saw these stories. Like, that's why I'm a bit jealous of you, because you get to watch all these classic episodes afresh. Um, not that I don't enjoy them now, but, you know, yeah. that new getting the video and not yeah. really knowing what was going on. It might have a Dalek on the cover, or it might have, you know. Um. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, because when you just give me an episode to watch, I have no idea what it's about. I'm no, going yeah. in completely fresh. Yeah. Um, I think it's an asset, to be honest, though. I wish I wasn't such a dick about it. <laughs> but uh, I can appreciate the old hair and stuff like that, but God, I, I think it's amazing to see it with fresh eyes, though. Honestly, I'd give anything to watch them like afresh. Really? Oh my god! Every video blew my mind. Anyway, thanks for that <coughs> bit of feedback, Kim. On to James A. Murray, who has this to say about the robots of death: "I'd love to see them in the modern series against Peter Capaldi. Endless possibilities." Well. I think Peter would be a good choice, really, wouldn't he, as a doctor to have these against? Because he has got that classic thing where I think yeah. he would bounce off them well. Yeah, I think so. But I can see him getting annoyed by that one scene. Yeah. Like, I heard a scream. Oh, yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, I think Tenon would play it better than... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't. I don't at all. He's, he's good in his own episodes. Let's yeah. leave it there. Chris Moore had this to say about Robots of Death. Triumph of design. With a solid script and cast, there's little to flaw in this production. Yeah, I agree. I'm nitpicking, if I'm honest, when, I'm doing the, when I was doing the notes. Like, you got to say something about it, haven't you? Yeah. You can't just say it's great. Uh, can't I? Uh, I suppose you could, yeah. You can explore why it's great. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah. That's pretty good. I saw problems. You did. I always see problems. You always see the bad in everything, don't you, you little bitch? I'll make it up if I don't see problems. (laughs) Thanks for that bit of feedback, Chris. On to our final bit of feedback for this week. Keith Say. Yes! Keith, we've got to send you a mug and a t-shirt. I think it's got to happen, hasn't it, really? Yeah. He's been there from the start. Um. One of the best classic stories matched with one of the best New Who stories. The one thing they both have in common, they are both scary. Scared cat face emoji. <laughs> one of the best of New Who. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I, do you know what? I'd probably say it is one of my favourites that I've seen. I did really enjoy it on yeah, third never... watch. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, that's not a dig that. way of saying it. But, you know... No, like, if we've just come from, like, Planet of the Dead, and honestly, the problem with New Who is that it can be so dire sometimes. Hmm. Oh, irreparable... It can be so fucking dire. 
I don't think I, I truly appreciate when it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from yeah, I think this is this can be up there. I think is one of the better ones. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, reckon, yeah. definitely up there. Um, I still, yeah, you know, I, I still really enjoy Satan Pit and stuff like that. But I think it's just generally due to nostalgia. One of those things. And I saw the Devil last night on Doctor Who. No, didn't know Doctor Who went there. Brilliant. Yeah, it's really good, really good. And thanks for that bit of feedback, Keith. So, what are we doing? Hang on. Wow. Is this the first Doctor Who episode where you actually enjoyed it? You really enjoyed it? Of New Who? Um, yes. I think so. Would you have known about it? Would you have just assumed all New Who was shite if you didn't watch this one? Uh, no, no. To watch it? No, because there, there are... You would, wouldn't you? There are episodes of New Who that I do enjoy that we haven't done yet. Um, you won't tell me what they are, will you? No. Um, I completely forgot about this or glossed over it when I've seen it before. And this is a gem. This is a diamond in the shit. Uh, no. <laughs> well, the rest of Capaldi might be brilliant. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure I remember it being pretty good. Or him being pretty good. Maybe not the stories being great, but Capaldi is definitely brilliant. You know. I do Capaldi every single podcast now. Oh God! Well, you've done ten and everyone. Nice, mm, nice one. Nice little dig there, wasn't it? I'll get well, my coat. What are we doing next time? Do you want to go first? I'll go first. Go on then. So next time, I thought we've done ten and we've done Jody, we've done Capaldi. Heck, we've even not done Chris. I don't know why we haven't gone to him yet, but. This time, we're going to Matt Smith. Oh! Hang on, we've done Matt Smith? Yeah. God, it was an awful episode, wasn't it? <laughs> right, well, we're going back there again with the first time he's in Doctor Who. Oh. The 11th hour. Mm. Series 5, episode 1. The new Doctor has 20 minutes to save the world, and only Amy Pond can help him. <gasps> Goodness me. She's a bitch, Amy Pond, isn't she? <laughs> you know what? I know I I don't really like her. It's horrible. Uh, Twenty minutes. How long is the episode? That one probably forty-five. Is it? Right. So I'm guessing he he wins. It might be longer actually because it's his first one, isn't it? No. I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. So my choice will either make classic Who fans groan in pain. Or hurrah in happiness. I'm going for a somewhat controversial episode. I'm going to go for the fourth serial of season 22. Starring Colin Baker and Patrick Troughton. Eh? I'm going for The Two Doctors. I've heard about this one. I've heard about this Uh, one. Yeah. Have you now? Yeah. I've heard how shit it is. <laughs> well, we'll see. No, I've not. I've not heard anything about it apart from I know it's an episode I, you know, I've heard of. But I'm sure it is shit. Who knows? Who? Why is it polarizing? Uh, just because some people say it's shit. <laughs> Why? Well, you'll find that out, won't you? <laughs> oh, I'm eager. Why? I'm eager for this one. Why? Why? So yeah. And why? So next week, we will be covering the 11th hour, 
and the two doctors. Whoopee. That'd be tough going. Do you like it, the two doctors? I do, yeah. I've got a soft spot for it. Um, so yeah, please let us know what you think of those two stories. And also please let us, please, that. So please let us know what you think of those two stories. And please send us in any feedback you have on the podcast in general, because we would love some, some, uh, what you call it? Some constructive criticism. Mm. I think it would be very nice for us to learn about what you want and we can trim the shit and uh, sort that out. Uh, We will be going back to Battles in Time in the future, probably next week, in a slightly different format. We've made a couple of decisions, haven't we? Um, And we shall see. It requires more work. It does require a bit more work. Uh, It might be a wildly different format. It might be exactly the same, just with a different paint on it. Who knows? But do let us know what you think. If you liked Battles in Time the way it was, maybe we can find a way to make find a way. (laughs) Maybe we can find a way to make it work. Um, Just for us at the minute, it's not really panning out the way we want it to pan out. Is that fair? That's that's fair. It's shit. It's shite. It's absolute <laughs> shite. Um, so, yeah, just let us know what you think. Send us in any feedback, any comments, any criticism. Which host do you prefer? Which host do you hate? Um, and why? So uh, that's it for Listen and the Robot to Death. You can join us next week for The Two Doctors and The Eleventh Hour. Thank you very much, Luke. It has been a pleasure, as always. And thank you, everybody, Thanks, for Paul. listening. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. I'm always here, typing away, fiddling. Um, So, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Bye. You can send us your feedback and comments by contacting us on Twitter at whocanconvince, email us at whocanconvinceyou at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook at Doctor Who Who Can Convince You podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment on your podcast platform to help people find us. Let me just deal with the cat, because the cat is scratching the door. Enid! Uh, What are you doing? Stop scratching everything, you dick. Like, I don't know what you want now, but I do need to change this chair, because my ass is turned to stone.
See, no, that's not where you sit, is it, Enid? If you want to stay in the room, you can sit on that chair, that's fine. But you're going to have to go over here. There you go. You're going to sit there. Jesus Christ, my ass. Ugh. Okay.